Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. The world is in a crazy, crazy place right now, so honestly, I just hope that you're all safe and sound, and I hope these stories can take your mind off of things, even for a little bit. So, let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. 25 years ago, I heard a fatal campfire story. Written by Lighting Nations. So, it's an alien. Andrew asked from across the campfire. I didn't say alien, Lee snapped. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not an alien, just that nobody knows for sure. For a moment, the only sounds were the fire cracking and the bugs in the forest. Sure sounds like an alien to me, I said and then pulled my marshmallow away from the flame. Andrew pushed up off his elbow. At 14 years old, he was the biggest and oldest member of our group. Okay, okay, let's go over the facts. It's a strange life form and nobody knows where it came from, and it's a threat to humanity. Conclusion, Alien. I bit into my marshmallow too soon, scalding my tongue. I never said alien, Lee mumbled. Whenever Andrew got worked up, the best thing to do was to let him have his way. And to my right, Jordy lay down inside his tent, his leg brace making a sharp metallic clatter. So if it's not an alien, what is it? Andrew asked, suspicious but curious. Nobody knows, I mean, there are theories. What theories? Lee leaned forward. Okay, some people think it's a parasite from beneath the ocean. They say scientists off the coast of Mexico were drilling when they accidentally stumbled into this hidden cavern, which meant that it was able to find a human host and escape. That's just the plot of the thing, Andrew said, his voice all serious. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah, it does. Andrew was all worked up. Despite being the one who had asked Lee to tell this dumb story in the first place. I thought for a moment. If they were underwater, how did the scientists get into the cave? Lee shrugged. Maybe they had a way to keep the water out. Either that or a parasite had got into a scuba suit. Or maybe it followed them back to the surface. My eyes flicked toward Jordy, whose forehead was beaded with sweat. Before we had left, Jordy's dad asked us to keep a close eye on him. Hey, Jordy, everything okay? Yeah, he answered, his voice all shaky, just a little dizzy. Lee, you better stop, said Andrew. You're scaring poor Jordy. He's about to wet his sleeping bag. Jordy, you sure you're alright? I asked. He gave a quick thumbs up and rolled onto his side, facing the inside of his tent. Andrew looked at Lee and then said, Okay, theory one is sea monster. What else you got? Lee paused to really ramp up the suspense. Russian bioweapon. Together, Andrew and I threw our heads back and laughed. Lee patted his hands and stood up. Screw you guys. Stop being such a baby, I said. Russian bioweapon, go on. By now, my marshmallow had cooled enough to swallow in one tasty gulp. 
He plopped back onto his tree stump. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, it makes the most sense. Think about it. You send one infected person to a place like New York. Then the parasite starts to replicate. Soon you've got a whole country filled with drones. But how would they keep it from infecting other Russians? Leah asked. If somebody gets on a plane to Moscow, it would mess them up too. Maybe it doesn't like the cold. Maybe it only replicates in warmer climates. Like I said, nobody knows for sure. They're still dissecting it. A breeze picked up, blowing the fire sideways, briefly making our shadows long and twisted. I said, Alright, so we've got sea monster and bioweapon. What else? Well, the final theory is alien, obviously. Obviously, I said, and then stretched out my arms. Okay, say this thing's real. How would you tell that somebody's infected? Lee picked up a stick and dragged it through the dirt. Well, first they would start acting weird, kind of shifty and ill. Like they had the flu or something. And they would get worse and worse until they were about to die. Except they wouldn't. They would just go into this kind of a stasis until the next victim got close enough. And your dad knows all of this. How? Andrew asked. He saw it with his own eyes. Mabalomi. It's true, Lee shot back, offended by the accusation. You're such a liar. Above our heads, stars winked out as an owl scooped from left to right. Shut up, Andrew, I said. I want to hear this. Go on and tell us how your dad knows about the monster alien thingy. He tossed his stick away. Okay, so one night he gets a call. Dispatch says that there's a nurse at the hospital who's freaking out. She's working late and there's not many people around and something weird is going on. Anyway, he gets over there super fast and the nurse comes out and says, It's in the morgue. While she leads him through, Dad asked, What am I looking for? And she replied, You'll know when you see it. He goes in all slow with his pistol out. And there are body bags on tables all around the room. And when he gets into the middle one of the bags, it starts thrashing around. He can see a figure inside the bag. And it's fighting to get out like a dead man just came back to life. So my dad goes over and grabs the zipper. He takes a deep breath and pulls it open. And boom, there it is. A corpse. Except its skin's all wiggly. And this actually calms my dad down. Because he figures that these staff had messed up and left a corpse there for weeks and now it's filled with rats and cockroaches and stuff. But then he poked its chest. Oh crap, I said, leaning forward. This story was pure crap, but still fun. Next thing he knows, the corpse's head starts convulsing. Lee mimicked the movements. Like it's thrashing around until the mouth opens wide. And out pops this fat, furry worm thing. And I mean it's so thick that it has to wriggle past the guy's mouth. My dad said it was like a severed arm. I bet your mom could swallow it whole. Andrew interrupted. Lee flipped him off without stopping the story. So it works its way out and it's like a snake except hairier. And it crawls around, coming after my dad. He decides to screw it and he runs back through the doors and then shouts that we have to form a barricade. 
He seals the morgue off and calls a dispatch and says to get a team of scientists and an exorcist. Next thing all, these guys in Haskem suits roll in. There are helicopters above the hospital and they set up a full military blockade. They bring my dad in and ask him a million questions and then make him strip off his clothing and power wash him with a hose. Andrew chuckled. I bet they didn't ask him to do that. It was probably his idea. Uh, suck it, Andrew. Anyway, they decide that he's okay but says, don't tell anyone because this is really serious. And then, as an afterthought, Lee added, but he told me, obviously. And with that, he leans back, his face all smug. Okay, Andrew said, holding up his hand. That's BS for three reasons. He raised his index finger. Number one, we live in a boring-as-crap town full of losers who talk about boring-as-crap stuff all day. If that happened, it would be all anybody talked about. Think about it when Lee Jordy's family got in an accident. Quickly, Lee and I motioned for Andrew to shut up. Months earlier, Jordy's dad lost control of his Volvo with the whole family, Jordy and both of his parents inside. The vehicle had tumbled down an embankment, flipped several times, and came to a stop upside down. And Jordy got a metal plate in his skull along with a fancy leg brace. His dad got a cracked wrist and his poor mom wound up six feet under her. For weeks, we were worried that Jordy might wake up a vegetable, although Andrew was sometimes not the best. He wasn't that big of an idiot to deliberately bring up the accident. He just got carried away. He cleared his throat and said, When Roy Leabody took a dump on the post office floor last year, it was literally front-page news. How the heck could they have kept the government quarantining an entire hospital under wraps? And if they did quarantine all those people, why would they just let your dad walk away? You said it yourself. Nobody understands this thing. How would they know it didn't implant him with eggs or spores or something? Well, because they scanned him, Lee replied. You're so full of it. I'm serious. Yeah, like the time your dad took out Bigfoot. He did. Lee looked ready to get in Andrew's face, which wasn't a good idea, because he was burning mad, even though it was just a fun campfire story. It took 56 bullets to bring him down, and the CIA took the body. It was a huge cover-up. Okay, ladies, calm down. I said through a yawn. It's getting late. I'm gonna turn in. Cool story, Lee, even if it was made up. Everybody turned toward their own tents, murmuring goodnight. What was the third reason? Jordy asked, without looking around. I thought that he had fallen asleep already. What? Andrew asked. You said there were three reasons the story was BS. What was the third? Andrew grinned. Lee's mom didn't say anything about it when she had my wiener in her mouth last night. Lee fired back with, Was it so small ladies can talk with it still in their mouth? While I stifled a laugh, Andrew charged over and grabbed Lee into a headlock, and then they jostled a little. Ah, good night, I said, zipping shut the entrance to my tent. But lying there, I couldn't sleep. Not because of the story, though. 
It was just one of those awkward human nights. After an hour of tossing around, strange sounds started coming from outside. They were hard to hear over Andrew's snoring, even when I listened carefully. So I poked my head outside and realized they were coming from Jordy's open tent. He hadn't looked so hot earlier. There might have been something wrong. Hey, Jordy, I called softly. No response. I called again, a little louder this time, but still nothing. By now, the fire had burned itself out. I kicked on my shoes and found my way to Jordy's tent and leaned inside. Jordy, but is everything okay? That close, I could sense movement. His sleeping bag was zipped all the way up and facing away from me, but it looked as though Jordy was wriggling around, like an escape artist trying to break out of a straitjacket. I gulped. As my fingers hovered inches away from the zip of the bag, my thoughts went back to Lee's story, to the parasite, and how it leaped between hoes. The roasted marshmallow nearly slid up again. Part of me wanted to give Jordy a nudge to check if he was okay. But at that moment, I would have rather dipped my hand into shark-infested waters. I pictured a fat, furry alien warming its way down my throat. But there was no reason to panic, since the most plausible explanation was Jordy had decided to spank the monkey. If I had nudged him, the guy would probably roll over bare wiener in hand and it would be super super awkward back in my tent i pulled the zip all the way up and slept as far from the entrance as i could did i really believe lee's dumb story enough to keep a heavy torch close by in case any aliens tried to climb inside my mouth apparently the sun was up when i heard lee scream groggy and tired i crawled outside oh what's going on he was performing chest compressions on Jordy, who had gnats and mosquitoes all over his face. Wake up, Jordy! Lee shouted, his voice all shaky. Wake up! Andrew stood over him, jaw hanging open. Jordy wasn't moving, and he wasn't breathing either. Since I was the fastest, I sprinted to the closest ranger station and frantically explained the situation. The ranger called a doctor who got there too late. Far too late to help. Jordy was dead. We called our parents who came to pick us up. A few days later, after the three of us returned to school, the principal summoned us into his office. He sat on his desk in a weirdly informal way, a grim look on his face. Boys, I just got a call from Jordy's father. He sighed. First things first, none of you did anything wrong. In fact, the doctor praised you for reacting so quickly when you discovered what had happened. But as you know, a while back Jordy and his family had gotten into an accident, and he had suffered a pretty nasty brain injury. Oh no, my gut twisted. Since Jordy was six months out from the crash without any lingering problems, the doctors had classified him as a low risk which meant that his dad didn't see any harm in letting him camp out with his closest friends, just like old times. The principal pinched the bridge of his nose. Well, uh, unfortunately, after brain injuries, people can suffer all kinds of medical problems months or even years later. Don't say it. Please don't say it. 
Well, it, it turns out in the middle of the night, Jordy had a pretty severe seizure. My throat sealed itself shut. Like I said, you boys didn't do anything wrong. If Jordy had been asleep in his own bed, it would have been the exact same result. The principal kept speaking, although I didn't hear a single word, because already the guilt had taken hold. When I had leaned into Jordy's tent, he had been mid-seizure. He had been mid-seizure and I just walked away. The principal asked if we needed to go home early to properly process the news and all three of us said yes. I never told anybody what happened. I came close at the funeral but I decided against it. Partly because it wouldn't have done any good. Mostly out of shame. So, that's it. There's not really a point to this story. But the 25th anniversary of Jordy's death is creeping up. And I felt this overwhelming need to tell somebody. Anybody. Even just strangers on the internet. So now the story is out there. And you all know about the horrible thing I did. The government hunts down mythical creatures and uses them against enemies of the state. Written by The Dark Void 79. I am a retired Army Special Forces operator who has 20 years of experience under my belt. Ten of those years were spent with the Scout Rangers conducting jungle reconnaissance, covert operations, raids, hostage rescue and all the other special operation tasks that you would expect from elite military formations like SR. Meanwhile, the other 10 years was dedicated to hunting down mythical and paranormal creatures and employing said creatures against internal and external threats to the nation. Now I can bore you with stories of my first 10 years in the Rangers, but I doubt that that would be anything new from these stories that you've already heard special forces operators do. Go behind enemy lines, stay undercover for weeks on end, raid enemy camps. Those are all the usual stories that have been told by others before me. So instead of telling my experiences there, I'll instead go straight to the one that I'm sure has piqued your interest. My tenure is working with mythical and paranormal creatures. The idea of using mythical and paranormal creatures may seem strange at first. However, it has been a practice that has been an armed forces doctrine for nearly seven decades now, and I doubt that they have plans of removing it anytime soon. It is an effective method of clearing an area of enemies, and although mistakes can result in catastrophic problems, such occurrences are few. Now, I'm not saying that mistakes rarely happen, because a good number of them happened in the past. However, their numbers are small enough that not many people take note of them. Besides, since operations often happen in isolated areas and hostile insurgent territory, any unexpected casualties from nearby innocent civilians can easily be blamed on the local insurgency. Now, I can go into more detail about the cover-up campaigns and the screening operations made by the government to hide their use of mythical and paranormal creatures. But that task is assigned to another special operation group of the armed forces. I'm not exactly sure of what their operations are, 
or how their operations group is run, but I do know that they are effective in their job. Anyways, getting back on track, my special operations group is known as the Mythical and Paranormal Warfare Operations Group, the MPWOG, although we just refer to it as the MPOG since it's less of a mouthful. You're probably thinking that I'm crazy right now for saying this and I can't blame you. If I heard of such a thing all those years ago, I would have laughed too if I had heard of such a group. It sounds outrageous and silly. I mean true, the armed forces use psychological warfare to trick insurgents that creatures like asswings were out to get them. But those were nothing more than just props and sounds, not actual mythical creatures. However, if it weren't for the fact that I encountered MPOG during one of those few accidents that I was talking about, then I would have never thought that the government really used creatures of pure evil to fight its enemies. It happened sometime around 1988. Back then, my scout ranger company was deployed at Southern Luzon to assist Regional Unified Command foreign operations against the communist insurgents in the area. Patrolling the various jungle covered mountains in the region, we would spend weeks out in the field, trying to locate any trails that led to the insurgent camps. Because of the dense jungle in the area, it wasn't too hard for the enemy to conceal their camps from aerial observation. Unable to locate insurgent bases from the air, it was up to us rangers to hunt them down. However, on one of our nightly hunts, we had encountered something that would change the rest of my career. Trekking through the mountainous jungle, trying to keep as silent as possible, my squad went through an unmarked path, hoping to find any evidence of insurgent activity. The plan was to find as many tracks as possible until they led us to the main camp. This was easier said than done but we like to pride ourselves at being good at these kinds of jobs. All around us were a dense concentration of trees and slippery, muddy ground. While just a few meters away, on both of our flanks, were various mountain caves that ominously stared at us. From my position near the head of our column, I did my best to constantly glance towards the caves, being mindful to note any sign of movement. Such places were perfect hiding spots and there was no way of telling if an insurgent was hiding inside, ready to come out and fire a long burst of automatic rifle fire. Despite being special forces, night vision goggles were pretty rare back then, especially for us field units. And because of this, we had to rely on our eyes, the moonlight, and our refined instincts in order to feel what was in our surroundings. A few hours into our patrol, my point man, APFC Gomez, reported seeing smoke a few meters ahead of us, immediately ordering a halt. I told my squad to take a defensive position and keep their eyes open for a potential ambush. After that, I quietly made my way forward until I had reached Gomez, who was crouching down by some underbrush. What's up ahead? I asked in a whisper as I crouched down next to him. He pointed towards a tree up ahead of us. You see that big tree over there? Well, when the wind blew and it caused the leaves of the trees ahead of us to begin to sway, I managed to get a quick and clear view of its top. 
and I noticed there was smoke coming from it. From on top of the tree, I asked, squinting my eyes to stare at where he was pointing at. Are you sure? I'm sure, just wait for the wind. And so I did. Soon enough, a strong breeze came along, making the many branches of the trees around us sway, opening up the curtain of leaves that had earlier blocked my line of sight. Through that small opening, I had just managed to see the top of the big tree that Gomez was pointing at, and right on top of it was a trail of smoke. Reflecting from the moonlight, a trail of thin white smoke emitted from inside a wall of large leaves atop the tree, as it were a chimney. I found this odd, and I remember thinking how strange it was for someone to make camp on top of a tree, but I quickly shrugged off my doubts as I realized that it could be an insurgent lookout who was using the tree as a safe outpost to guard the perimeter. I had never encountered such a situation before, but it made sense to me at the time. A large tree provided a safe, concealed place from where a sentry could stay for the night and observe the ground below him. With that in mind, I convinced myself that it was indeed probably an insurgent there, who had stupidly lit a fire on top of his tree, or had carelessly decided to smoke a cigarette. Whichever of the two, it gave away his position. The presence of an outpost like that could have been a sign that we were close to the camp. Emboldened by this, I decided to push my squad forward to further investigate the area and gather more intelligence. Following behind Gomez, I kept my eyes on the tree, looking for any sign of movement. The rest of the squad followed behind us, all alert and ready to engage in case something bad happened. And then all of a sudden, I heard the sound of rustling leaves and bending branches. Quickly reacting to this, I aimed my rifle forward and pointed it towards the big tree ahead of us. By then, we were only 10 meters away from the tree, and I was afraid that the insurgent noticed our approach and hurriedly got down to make an escape. However, when I scanned the area near the tree, I saw no person nearby. Thinking that he had managed to escape and run for home, I let out a curse of frustration. In my mind, I assumed that he would soon be informing his superior of our presence, and we would then have a patrol sent against us. Not wanting to risk any action with such a small forest, I began planning our escape. However, before I could give out any orders, a deep and old voice spoke loudly from our right. You are not supposed to be here. It said firmly, making me almost jump from my position. Out of instinct, I immediately pointed my weapon at the source of the sound, and the rest of my squad did the same. At first, I couldn't actually see the source of the voice. However, as I searched these shadows, my eyes soon fell on something that made my spine shiver in fear. Through the dim light of the moon, I managed to see a bulky and naked man, with his skin so dark that he almost seemed like a shadow. Scanning his body, I couldn't help but notice how large and grotesque his arms and legs and torso were. The muscles on them were large and seemingly deformed, and giving him a shape that seemed odd and unsettling. Soon, fixing my gaze upon his face, I then saw two wide white eyes staring back at me 
with an unnatural aura that made my heart nearly stop in fright. I don't scare easily, so I was surprised at how scared I was feeling during that moment. Studying the person before me, I was unsure why he looked so strange and so frightening. I felt uneasy just to stand before him, and I had to fight the urge to step back and bolt away from him. I was confused by this and didn't know why I was so scared. Trying my best to keep my composure, I tried to push away further thought of fear as I spoke up towards the person who had stumbled upon us. Who are you? I asked, keeping my sights trained on him, as I kept a stern grip on my weapon. What are you doing here? It responded to my question by laughing. In a very rough tone, it let out a deep laugh, as if it was mocking me for asking him such questions. Normally, I would have been angry at such a taunt, but instead I felt scared. Watching him carefully, I then saw his hand move to grab something, forcing me to act on my instincts. Don't move. Keep your hands on your sides. I shouted, but he simply ignored me. In my mind, I thought he was grabbing for a gun or worse, a grenade. Reacting as fast as I can, I quickly pressed the trigger of my rifle. However, to my surprise, I found myself unable to do so. Trying to will my finger to pull the trigger, I realized that I could not do it. The simple act, one that I have done countless times, could not be done. As if some kind of invisible force was preventing me, I found my finger frozen and stopped. And then I noticed that my squad was not reacting to these strange man's movements. I knew them each one of the rangers in my squad, and I knew that they too would have instantly pulled the triggers of the rifles and shot the man. Yet not a single shot was fired. Finding my body frozen and my heart pumping fast in fear, I was surprised to find that I was still able to turn my head. Looking left and right, I saw each member of my squad as seemingly frozen, as if we were all stuck in a pose of pointing our guns at the man, but unable to do anything else but turn our heads. Studying the expressions of the rangers closest to me, I could see the fear plastered on their faces, the same fear that I knew was on mine. Trying to mask the fear with anger, I could hear a chorus of curses coming out of their mouths as they tried to comprehend what was happening. I too would have let out a curse, but the remaining calm part of my mind told me that it wouldn't have done anything to change the situation. So instead of shouting... I remained silent and returned my focus to the strange man. Checking what the man had grabbed, I was surprised and confused to see that he had picked up a thick lit cigarette, whose smoke and stench freely floated in the air. Placing the cigarette in his mouth, he then looked at each one of us and gave an unsettlingly large smile, which revealed teeth that were as white as his eyes. I'm not supposed to let anyone pass through this trail, it told us in its deep voice. Then it began to move closer towards us. None of you should be here. Still unable to move, we were left helpless. One of my rangers, a PFC Dominguez, found himself being approached directly by the strange man. Watching the man as he approached Dominguez... I could see him smile at the ranger and blow a thick cloud of smoke towards his face, making the ranger cough. 
After coughing out the smoke that he had hailed, Dominguez turned his head to give the man a long look before turning his head towards me. Sergeant, I think, he began, his voice shaky as both me and the strange man stared at him. I think he's a copre. A copre, a creature known to lurk in the jungles and mess around with those who travel through them. We had all heard the stories as kids, and as I stared at the man before us then, then I still found it hard to believe that the man before was a copre. That small part of my brain tried to rationalize what was actually happening, as I thought that copres were nothing but mythical creatures. They couldn't possibly exist. I fought the urge to believe what Dominguez had said and instead thought that what really was before us was an insurgent. Somehow this insurgent had administered some sort of airborne chemical agent that had paralyzed our bodies and prevented us from moving. That was what I tried to convince myself. I would have held on to that belief if it were not for the events that happened next. Staring sharply at Dominguez with his large eyes, I saw the man's expression change from amused to hurt, and then to angered. Feeling my blood chill, I felt my fear rise up as he moved his face closer towards Dominguez until his eyes were staring directly at him. Don't you ever dare call me a capre, its deep voice shouted, the noise seemingly echoing all around us. You will pay for what you said. And then he moved his head to stare at each one of us, scanning our faces and glancing at our eyes. You will all pay for being here tonight. None of you are supposed to be here. Trying to comprehend what he meant, I suddenly felt my thoughts interrupted when my hands suddenly began to move against my will. Unable to stop them, I let out a curse as I felt my hands loosen its grip on my rifle, before having one hand move towards the holster of my sidearm. My eyes went wide when I felt my hand grip my pistol and pull it out of the holster. Being willed by something else, my hands then switched off the safety of the pistol before raising the weapon up. Realizing what was happening, I tried my best to fight my own uncontrollable hand. Don't resist it, the copre said, his voice low and seemingly everywhere. Do it. Don't fight back. Let your desire end the pain. Using all the willpower that I had, I fought and fought trying to tell my own hand not to obey the copre's will. To my surprise, my efforts seemed to be doing something, as the smooth movement of my hand suddenly slowed as if encountering resistance. Feeling encouraged, I closed my eyes and tried to blot out the voice of the copre, but suddenly got knocked off my concentration when I heard three loud gunshots. My senses returned to my surroundings and my ears then caught three firm thuds around me, and I soon realized what it was. Corporal Villanueva, PFC Gomez, and PFC Ronaldo all carried sidearms. If they were being willed to do the same thing my own hands were trying to do to me, then it means that they had lost the fight. Unable to spare a second degree for them, I tried to return my focus to my own battle. However, I was once more distracted by the shouts and curses from the remaining members of my squad. PFC Dominguez, PFC Hernandez, and PFC Isidro did not have sidearms, but they did carry combat knives for covert operations. 
The horrible image of that filled my mind as I realized that this was a much worse fate compared to being taken on by your own sidearm against your will. Listening to their battle, I felt my heart drop as they cried out in anger and frustration. Letting out screams, they fought hard to save their lives, but it sounded like a losing battle. Join your friends, the Capri said, his words ringing in my ears. It is time to rest now, so let it be and don't fight back. Death will be swift and peaceful. A succession of sharp stabs could then be heard, followed by gurgling sounds after each one. I knew where their knives went, and I felt heartbroken as each one of them fell to the ground, leaving me as the only one left in my squad. With my heart broken and my mind sufficiently distracted, my uncontrollable hand was able to gain some advantage, as it managed to move the barrel of my pistol closer to my temple. Emotionally drained by the loss of my rangers, a small part of me felt that I should give in and let this unknown force make my hand take me out. But I was a stubborn person and I kept fighting. I knew that it was losing the fight and that it was only a matter of time before the pistol got a good angle against me. But I would not just give in so easily. I wanted to fight until the last second, just like my rangers did. Trying my best to return my will to my hand, I concentrated as much as I could, trying to avoid any distraction. This, however, proved harder than expected, as the copre moved itself in front of me and stared. Chuckling deeply as it watched me, it stared right into my eyes. By doing this, I found it harder to fight my hand, as the copre gave some sort of invisible power to ensure that I would lose. Your friends are waiting for you, he said. What's the point of living without them? Join them, join them, join them. Cursing it over and over, I allowed my rage to give me strength to resist for just a bit longer, but each second brought the barrel of my pistol closer and closer to my temple. I was now losing strength and sheer anger and force of will would not prevent my oncoming death. However, just before the barrel could move the last inch towards my temple, I suddenly felt the unseen control of my hand loosen and then disappear. Taken by surprise by this, I looked forward towards the copper to see him stare at something behind me before slowly backing away. As he retreated, I felt the wonderful sensation of being able to control my body once more. Feeling suddenly weak as my will was returned, I almost collapsed onto the ground. However, I managed to maintain enough strength to keep myself up. As I watched the copper move backwards before turning around to make a sprint in what looked like in an attempt to escape. But before it could get away, it suddenly stopped, as if someone had blocked its path. Before I could find out what had stopped it, I suddenly heard the sound of footsteps behind me. Instinctively, I turned around and suddenly saw three figures approaching me. At first, I mistook the dark silhouettes approaching me as more capres. However, I soon realized that these figures were smaller. A careful study of them reassured me that... They were not creatures of the unknown, but instead, fellow humans. But as I studied them, I couldn't help but wonder who they were. The three men had black battle dress uniforms, and they made them easily blend with the night. Staring at them as they approached, I noticed all three of them had their weapons drawn and ready. 
However, I also noticed that each one of them had a hand raised, focusing on their raised hands. I noticed that they were all holding a large bottle with a silver-colored material inside of it. For a moment, I wondered what was inside that bottle, before letting my thoughts drift and wonder who these men were. Inspecting the gear in them, I was impressed to see that they were fully kitted for combat and night operation, and aside from the fact that they lacked a helmet, they seemed to remind me of combat-ready American soldiers. With night vision goggles on their faces, ballistic vests protecting their torso, and a vest filled with rifle magazines and grenades, they looked nothing like the common field soldiers in the armed forces. Due to their luck, I initially mistook them as American special forces who somehow stumbled upon my predicament. However, a quick greeting and tag-along quickly threw away my assumption as I soon realized that these men were Filipino. Hey, are you alright? One of them asked as he approached me. Yeah, I managed to reply, my voice shaky. Lifting my hand, I saw that it was shaking also. The battle had taken its toll, both on my mind and body. Good, he told me, with a hint of relief in his voice. You're one lucky person, you know that. Moving closer to check on me, he soon pulled me aside so I could find a place to sit and rest. As he did this, I was able to look at the ground around me to see six bodies lying on the ground. I felt a pang in my heart as I saw them. My whole squad was dead now, and emotions swirled inside me at the thought of it. As I sat down and tried to reflect on what happened, I suddenly remembered the creature that caused all of this trouble and turned my attention towards the direction that I last saw him. Still standing in the same spot, I saw the copre remained unmoving in his position as another group of black-cladded soldiers emerged from the darkness, weapons drawn and ready. Although I had a hard time seeing clearly in the night, I did note that this group also had raised hands and I knew that this meant that they too were carrying these same bottles filled with silver-colored material. As these men got closer to the copre, the creatures seemed to hiss in anger at each step they took. However, unlike his earlier arrogance and dominance, the copre looked helpless against the new arrivals. Once more, my curiosity was ignited, as I wondered why these men were and what was so special about these bottles that these men carried. As I sat there and watched, I took in what I could and hoped that I would at least get some answer from them later on. After a while... Most of the black-clad men formed a circle around the copre, while one detached himself from the main group and walked towards me. As he got closer, he took a quick glance towards my fallen rangers before doing a sign of the cross. I'm sorry about your friends, he told me. I'll detail one of the squads to recover them once we secure our target. You mean the copre? I inquired. Yeah, but that's not a copre. Never mistake it as one. They hate it when you do that, he said, gesturing towards the terrible monster behind him. What that is, is Agta. Similar to a copra, yes, but only native to the eastern VCIs. Unlike copras, they're more hostile and can get very dangerous. But they're easy to control once you get mercury near them. Is that what you were carrying in those bottles? I asked. Yeah, he said, before continuing his explanation. 
Mercury has this magical effect on them that weakens their power. An Agta can seduce you to do things you don't like, but if you have Mercury on you then it is unable to use its power or strength. Well that's good to know, I said, making a note to always bring Mercury with me in any future patrol. However, as he explained the creature to me, there was one thing that nagged my mind. Taking my chances, I decided to ask him in hopes of getting an answer. You said that Agtas were native to Eastern Visayas, right? So what is it doing here in Luzon? Because we brought him here, he told me plainly. You brought him here, I said, nearly shouting it, eyes wide in shock. I felt more confused than ever. Why would you bring a terrible creature like that here? I felt rage boil inside of me at the thought of what they had done. You're soldiers too, aren't you? You're supposed to protect the country, not spread harm within its borders, I said. Although at the time I wasn't really sure if they were soldiers like me, for all I knew, they could actually be members of a private army for some kind of organization that collects these creatures. Hey, easy now, it's not like we had a choice, he explained. The orders came from the AFP chief who ordered MPOC to deploy C-90109, since he thought the Agta would be an effective way of countering insurgent movements in the area. Well, he did a good job for the first few nights, but apparently his habit of mischief made him forget that our deal meant that he could only target members of the insurgency. He was out of line for targeting your man, and I apologize that our operations group did not realize the danger sooner. This was our first time deploying an Agta and maybe the last. I stared at him for a moment and took in what he said. However, out of all the things that he said, there was one thing that stuck out the most that I couldn't help but continue to think about. What's MPOG? And with that, he began telling me about the operations group and how they used mythical and paranormal creatures for various clandestine operations. He was a lieutenant that I had learned and... His platoon was one of the few elite units trained at deploying and capturing creatures and entities through the use of special methods and equipment. At first, I didn't want to believe him. But then again, how could I not believe him when one of the very creatures they used had attacked me and killed my squad? At the end of his explanation, I found myself with a new view of the world. As if my eyes were now open... I now realized that there were more things that lurk in the darkness of the jungle than just insurgents. This scared me a lot, and I realized that I suddenly felt thankful for the fact that an organization like MPOC existed to make sure that such creatures and entities did not wreak havoc upon these cities, towns, and burials of the country. Why tell me all this? I finally asked him. If your operations group is supposed to be a secret... Why reveal so much information to an outsider like me? I looked at him and through the faint light of the moon, I saw a grin form on his face. Because I see potential in you. I've never seen someone with a strong enough will to resist the deathly seductions of an Agta. Because of that, I know MPOG would have a place for you. The recruitment season is coming up soon and the operations group only sends invitations to those who we think will qualify. Once the offer arrives, I hope you take it. And with that, he gave me a small nod before walking away. A few minutes later, the rest of the MPOG forces arrived to help secure the area and contain the Agta. 
Later that morning, I was returned to the army camp with me and my squad had left the night before. The official story was that my squad was ambushed by insurgents and that I was able to hold out until reinforcements had arrived to recover me and the bodies of my rangers. For this, I was awarded the Gold Cross. However, knowing the true events, I felt unworthy to receive the award. This was my first encounter with mythical creatures in Empog, but it was definitely not the last. Two months after the encounter, I received a letter inviting me for the MPWOG qualifications. I accepted it and thus my career in the operations group began. You're probably wondering what this letter has to do with you. Well, the lieutenant I met during the Night of the Agta encounter was your father. He would eventually become my commanding officer and, in later years, a good friend. Now I know you're really curious about who he really was and what happened to him, so I'll tell you about his deeds and his ultimate faith. But I need to make sure first that you believe me. I don't want to waste time and energy writing a letter that you might just crumple up and throw away. So, if you get this and believe what I'm saying, then I suggest that you write back to me and I'll tell you all about your father's time at Empog. This letter was recently sent to me and I need help figuring out what to do next. For a few months now, I've been collecting various notes and journals of my father in order to create a biography in his honor. My father was a scout ranger who achieved the rank of major before passing away in an operation that was deemed so secret that until today, me and my family still don't know what exactly happened. As part of the biography, I had asked various colleges of my father to write letters about their experience with him. I have received dozens of letters from his old army friends, but this one stuck out the most. At first I didn't know if I should believe him. Everything he said didn't make sense. My father was a scout ranger, not some special forces operator that worked with mythical creatures that don't exist. However, the letter came with a photo. In that photo were two uniformed men posing next to some kind of makeshift sandbag bunker. And both men had patches with the MPOG written on it. One of the men was my father. Do you guys think I should write him back? There's something wrong with Robot 908. Written by Jordan Group. There's something seriously wrong with Robot 908. At first I thought it was only bad luck, that people were being careless. But now I don't know what to think. Sorry, I'm getting way ahead of myself. My name's Dave and I work in an auto parts manufacturer. Now I can't name the company so I'll just call it Kressler. We create the various pieces that go into your car when it gets put together at the assembly plant. The only thing that's important when you work at Kressler is the daily quota. We're divided into teams and we're kept accountable for every other team member when it comes to production standards. And by standards, I mean getting everything done on time no matter what. There is no emphasis on safety or technical training, only on speed. And that means getting new people out on the factory floor as quickly as possible, with little to no safety education 
When I had told my brother Noel that I wanted to work at Crestler, he said that it was awful and to avoid it at all costs. Since he had worked there before and had been lucky to get out alive. But I really, really needed a job and he couldn't talk me out of it. He told me to be careful that there had been accidents and the company covered them up, paying off the family so the media didn't catch wind of what a death trap the place really was. My first week in the job, I literally almost died, and I would have too, if not for the fact that Danielle went into the cage instead of me. The robot that I was responsible for Robot 908 had suddenly stopped working, going dead in the middle of an operation. Even though she wasn't my manager or supervisor, Danielle was on my team and my robot's output was needed to maintain our group's quota for the day. Without it, we would fall behind and end up on the crap list. Management followed up rigorously with anyone who didn't meet quota, and that meant losing out on bonuses, lost hours, and even dismissal if it happened frequently enough. Needless to say, we couldn't afford to let the robot stay inactive. Did you call maintenance? She asked, walking over to my station. Yeah, I left a message, but you know how it is when you leave a message. I'll be lucky to hear back by Tuesday. Keep calling, and Gideon will have an embolism if we're short again. You're the new guy, right? Yeah, hey, I'm Dave. And Danielle, listen, we need to get this up and running again ASAP. Oh, what's the error? Compression fault in stem sex. I told her and she shook her head, looking disappointed. No way to clear that without somebody going in there. That kind of error means something's come loose and needs a manual adjustment. Call in maintenance again and don't stop until they pick up the phone. Nodding, I went back to the landline phone at the main control module and entered the number for the maintenance office again. The phone rang and rang, but there was no answer. After nearly an hour had passed by, we were getting frantic. The chance for making up lost time was dwindling right in front of us, and if we didn't do something quick, we would be in serious trouble, maybe even fired. And I really needed the job. I honestly couldn't afford to lose it. I guess Danielle felt the same way. Watch my terminal, she said, adjusting her hard hat. I'm going in. Wait, are you sure? I thought we're not supposed to. But she ignored me, unlocking the cage door and swinging the chain link gate open. Closing it behind her, she looked around to see if anyone was watching, and then stepped towards the robot. The caution sign stared ominously at me from the entrance as she did this. They read, Stop, 
Do not enter. Extreme risk of severe bodily harm and death. Authorized maintenance personnel only. I stepped back, watching as she had approached the robot. It was a huge arm, standing connected to a pedestal which was nearly 10 feet tall. The whole thing was a monstrosity, towering much larger than any normal person. Danielle was dwarfed by it as she approached. Hey, be careful. This seems like a really bad idea. What's the error message again? She called out to me. Compression fault in stem six. I called out to her over the noise of machinery and robots worrying and welding all around us. Okay, I think I see it. I'm gonna try something. She bent over with a screwdriver in her hand and began to tighten one of the connections. After barely touching the thing, it sprang to life looking possessed. The massive robot arm had been mid-turn when it had shut off. Thus, it had resumed its motion and spun on its axis, straightened Danielle with tremendous force. Its glowing, walding rod drove straight through her eye, impaling her, and then it lifted her up from the ground and sent her spinning through the air. The huge machine picked up where it had previously left off, welding pieces of steel together with the white-hot welding rod driven right through her skull. Each action of the machine glowed bright with extreme heat, and she screamed a high-pitched wail of agony as it did. Somehow, she remained conscious and thrashing while this went on and on. After being dazed for a few seconds, watching the horrific scene unfolding, I came to my senses enough to hit the emergency stop button. The only problem was, it didn't do anything. The robot continued. Robot 908 kept spinning around rapidly, executing each function seamlessly, welding and rotating, pistoning the giant arm up and down, and bringing Danielle with it for each agonizing movement, while she kicked her legs and desperately grabbed at the hot welding rod, burning her hands as she grasped the heated metal with bare palms sizzling and smoking. Help! Get it off! Get it off! She screamed again and again. I kept hitting the emergency stop button, but it did nothing, as if it wasn't even attached to the equipment. I would find out later on that management that didn't care for the emergency stop buttons, since they slowed down production. The other workers nearby didn't even turn from what they were doing to even look. They were all too concerned about missing their own quota. Wearing machinery and robot arms welding parts together covered the sound of Danielle screaming, drowning it in the cacophony of noise, which continued all around us undeterred. It was obvious to me now that 
This was not the first time such a tragic event had happened, and no one seemed to pay any mind. I could do nothing but watch as she was sent spinning through another cycle of operations and saw her blood being sprayed over the factory floor, soaking the machinery and the chain link fence surrounding her in red. I looked up a moment later and realized I was somehow inside of the cage with her. Mid-stride, I was approaching the mechanical beast, but I had no memory of ever entering the restricted area. It felt like I was in a dream, no longer in control of my own body. The huge steel arm swung around, aimed straight at my head. Danielle was still dangling from it, impaled through her eye with the welding rod. Her legs dangled and swung wildly as I jumped out of the way, barely avoiding an impact. Instead of following its normal routine, the arm was now swinging back repeatedly in my direction, attempting to thrash me to death as I barely dodged it each time. My heart was hammering with fear as I tried desperately to grab hold of Danielle's legs, to pull her off of the possessed machine, but it was moving too fast. It came around unexpectedly, and I felt a powerful impact in my midsection as I went flying across the cage, slamming into the chain link fence with a brutal collision that rattled my teeth and my gums. Finally, a maintenance man came out towards the cage, walking at a leisurely pace, whistling a little tune to himself. He saw Danielle in her face, impaled by the machine, saw me in there with her, all beat up and bruised, dodging the robotic arm like a matador. And he didn't break his stride or even hurry one step faster. You two really shouldn't have gone in there. He said calmly as I watched him open the control panel with a key. Maintenance personnel only. Didn't you read the sign? My jaw was hanging down at his lack of concern or empathy. And I couldn't believe his absolute calm as he reached inside the control module. And fiddled with a switch mart. Emergency lockout. And Danielle had stopped screaming and was now hanging limply from the giant robot arm as it continued its task, pretending to be just a normal robot once again. It abruptly stopped in the middle of a welding operation, pitting her against a piece of steel. Several men came out of nowhere, dressed in dark vermilion-colored coveralls. They opened up the gate and went inside, beginning to clean up the scene all around me. The team worked quickly, not missing a beat as they tore Danielle down from the welding arm of the robot and put her in a black bag, carting her off somewhere else that I couldn't see. Honestly, I didn't even see them check for a pause. 
And then the rest of them were cleaning up the mess with buckets and mops and squeegees. Moving quickly and not doing a very thorough job, I noticed. As if all they cared about was getting the machinery back up and running again as quickly as possible. Man, oh man, Robot 908 again. The maintenance guy standing next to me said, This one's been nothing but trouble, I'll tell ya. Ever since it came into the factory. He dusted off his hands and I heard his radio crackle to life. The sounds of screaming could be heard through the receiver. Uh, you better go up to the management office. They'll want to talk to you. And you'll have to sign an NDA. Don't worry though, they'll make it worth your while. They always do. He winked and flashed me a grin with a gold incisor. Hurry up now. Don't want to keep them waiting. Time is money after all. Reports from Indonesia were much more startling than we expected. Written by Cal is writing. Being stuck in Antarctica for months with no outside contact was atrocious. But in hindsight, considering what we discovered happened in the outside world, it was an absolute blessing. May was the last time that we had a resupply ship or contact from the mainland. It is now October. All of our attempts at contact have ended in failure. The remaining researchers at this remote Antarctic outpost have instituted a rationing program to save the fresh water, food, and these supplies that we have left. We had enough supplies to keep the station running for half a year without resupply, but we were getting pretty close to running out. There were issues with the Wi-Fi over three months ago, and even after sending a request for personnel from the mainland to repair this issue, we've received nothing. We sent letters back home to reassure our families, but even with a snail mail in this day and age, it's odd we haven't gotten a response back. Every day I refreshed my email. Nothing. Our irritation turned into boredom, which turned into worry and speculation. Once summer came in October and the ice shelf had melted, a dozen or so of us decided to embark for Argentina via a research vessel previously frozen solid into the ice. The Geraldine Palmer, or the G. Palm as some of us like to call it. It was both a resupply mission, but also just to figure out what exactly was going on with the lack of contact from the outside world, hopefully, and bring back some fiber optic specialists while we're at it. The voyage would take two days and be relatively uneventful, some leopard seals and Adelaide penguins, the usual. On the second day, the Wi-Fi abruptly resumed. My MacBook has suddenly exploded with emails. Strangely enough, the latest was dated three months ago. Most of it was pretty mundane. A birthday email from my fiancé who says that he misses me. A bank statement. Some spam. I hope that the emails would give me some clue as to the great mystery of the informational blackout, but nothing. 
That is, until I noticed an email from my postdoc mentor at Berkeley, Dr. Greg Kleinhardt. Hey Lisa, hope you're adjust into life in Antarctica, and I hope all goes well with the lichen research. A colleague of mine, Dr. Jard Amadi, a pathologist at the Samarinda Medical Institute, forwarded this email. I thought it might pique your research considering your dissertation work with cordyceps. March 28th, 2025. Indonesia Cordycep. Dr. Kleinhardt. In giving your mycology expertise, I thought you could bring your two cents to this intriguing incident at a small remote village on the island of Borneo. Apparently, there were rumors circulating from the village of Badukesu in central Kalamatan about a fungal disease spotted in orangutan cadavers, which the authorities had begun to call Penyakitasam, meaning tamarind sickness. Dead orangutans brought to the village were shown to have large orange tendrils resembling tamarinds, hence the name. I was contacted by the Indonesian government to investigate this possible new fungal infection. When I arrived at Badukesu, deep in the Bornean jungle, I had my guide, Abang, who was able to translate for me between Indonesian and the tribal language, Dayak. I inquired the elders to let us see the orangutans, and the young men led us to an empty field on the outskirts of the village. We could smell it before we saw it. An entire field filled with rotting orangutans. A thick cloud of flies cloaked the field, and I had to cover my mouth as the stench was utterly putrid. Two men with rags covering their faces took long sticks and poked at the corpses. We could see the appendage-like orange fungi protruding from the animals, and I have included some photos attachments for you to view. The gross were about three feet in length, half a foot in diameter. A few of the men stabbed and had popped the tendrils, releasing a rain of what appeared to be spores ten feet in the air. We asked the men where they had found the orangutans, and they pointed down a small jungle path. We continued down the path and we stopped. We asked them where it could be. A bang looked confused. What did they say? Look up. When we looked up and my jaw dropped, above us in the treetops were the bodies of hundreds of orangutans with these same orange growths protruding off their fur. The men would use long bamboo poles to knock them loose, as most of them appeared to have chopped down on the trees with their jaws before rigor mortis had set in. We took some samples back to Samarinda and performed a culture test which confirmed this pathology was indeed a fungus. Analysis of its nuclear ribosomal genes determined that the fungus was a normal form of cordyceps, perhaps the first one that's known to infect mammals, which is surprising, considering the fact that we previously thought the mammalian immune system would be too complex for cordyceps to infect, unlike these simpler immune systems of an insect. However, this novel strand seems abundantly more evolved to suppress the immune system of a mammal than any cordyceps known to us. We are still in the preliminary phases of research, but we found some surprising findings concerning the fungus behind Penyakit Assam. 
When we dissected the orangutans, we found that the fungus had densely infected muscle cells, replacing up to around 40% of the muscle mass of the orangutan. We also found that it had extensively attacked motor neurons and caused lesions in the premotor cortex. We suspect that what caused the orangutans to chomp down with their jaws on the trees in the final stage of the infection was due to a final massive release of neurotoxins we found to be quite similar to those released during a tetanus infection. This death before the fruiting bodies of the cordyceps burst out of the dead orangutan. We would love for you to review the data that I've sent to you and to extend a cordial invitation to Indonesia where we hope your expertise would be invaluable in this ongoing investigation. Best, Jair. That was the email. Anyways, I'm currently headed to Jakarta next week. I'll keep you updated. Let me know what you think about this situation. Hope you're staying safe and warm. Warmly yours, Dr. Kleinhardt. There is another email dated a few days after. Dear Lisa, I'm getting ready to head back from Indonesia, but what I've witnessed in the past week has been, for lack of a better word, distressing. I arrived in Jakarta a week after the email and then proceeded to travel to Samarinda. By then, Dr. Damati told me about an emerging epidemic in the village that had started the week before I had arrived. The villagers told us that over a dozen villagers began experiencing fevers and chills. It started with the men that actually showed us the field of orangutans. At first, the patient would feel lethargic, and then there would be nausea, vomiting, muscle convulsions, and delirium. Patients would need to be physically confined to bed due to the rigor of the muscle spasms, which the villagers ominously called Penyakit Asam. Noticeably, one individual had recently gone missing, a bang, the interpreter for Dr. Damati. Abang was reported to be one of the first villagers to fall ill with the disease. After suffering several muscle spasms, his family confined him to his bed. The next morning, the bed was empty, and the rope reportedly appeared to be gnawed off by the teeth. The week following, villagers reported smelling a stench that resembled rotting carcasses, but were not able to discover the source of the odor. It wasn't until enough flies gathered that the sound of insects buzzing led to a horrifying discovery. It was the body of a bang, who had scaled the palm tree. There was blood where his hands and feet had violently clawed into the wood, and his jaw, like the orangutans, was firmly clenched into the bark. His expression was one of intense agony as if mid-scream, and protruding out of his eye sockets were the same orange acylcarbs that were present on the orangutans. Limb-sized tendrils were protruding out of his back and head. Dr. Damati and I made plans to travel to Badukesu, but a few miles outside of the village there was a military roadblock on the only road into the village. Dr. Damati argued with the checkpoint guard, but after offering a bribe, we were able to make it into the village. As a precaution, we were dressed in hazmat suits, they were utterly unbearable in the jungle humidity, but considering what had happened to Dr. Damati afterward, I was grateful that I wore them. As we approached the village, we could see plumes of smoke. When we had arrived, we found the village completely abandoned. 
We then made the horrific discovery that the plumes of smoke came from a massive funerary pyre in the center of the village. The smoldering remains of the village people and the animals of it were piled unceremoniously on the dirt road across from what appeared to be the village mosque. I was nauseous to say the least, but Dr. Damati appeared more confused than disgusted. The village was Muslim, he muttered. Cremation is forbidden in Islam. The villagers would not do this unless... Unless what? Unless there was something that forced them to. Then we looked up. Dr. Damati instinctively began to recite a doa in Arabic as my mouth fell open. Oh my god. Above us, a dozen vultures and other birds circling the palm trees surrounding the village. It was then that we saw it. Whole families, young and old, had climbed the 32 feet high or so palm trees. All of them had clawed into the trees like a bang, and similar orange fungi protruded from their eye sockets. And just like a bang, long orange tendrils sprouted from their back and heads. I fell to my knees. You know me, Lisa, I am not a religious man. But at that moment I prayed. I didn't know to whom, and I didn't know what I was saying, but I prayed. Jair, I said, we need to get out of here now. Silence. Jair. I turned around. Dr. Damati had his back turned to me, and he was shaking. Jair, what's going on? Dr. Damati turned around, and I could see through the clear plastic head covering, a look of sheer panic on his face. He held up his arm, a flap of plastic hanging from a massive tear in his suit. Jair, we need to get back and put you in quarantine now. And Damati looked pale. I, I'm going to end up like them. No, you're not. Have some sense. We don't know if it's airborne. That was a lie, I know, but I didn't know what else to tell a doomed man. At that moment, we heard a series of popping coming from the trees and a flock of birds flew from the palms. The asco carps had ruptured on some of the corpses hanging from the trees, and a putrid smelling cloud of orange began to diffuse into the air. The birds, having flown into the cloud, began to fall from the sky. Damati bolted for the road, and I quickly followed. We got to the checkpoint when Damati began to lose his breath. He staggered forward before falling faced forward, the soldiers aimed their rifles and were barking at us in Indonesian. Dr. Damati, are you okay? He vomited before putting a hand up to brush me away. Please, he wheezed between chokes. Leave me be and go tell the others. At this point, Dr. Damati began to seize and in a frenzy began to rip off the hazmat and then his clothing. The soldiers scurried back, terrified and pointed their weapons at Damati. I remembered that they were shouting, Penyakit Assam! Penyakit Assam! Dr. Damati continued to seize for ten seconds, his back thrashing back and forth and his eyes rolling back, drool pulling out of his mouth. The soldiers shouted and then fired a shot, crack right in the leg. He abruptly stopped and laid still, Dr. Damati. I turned him around to see if he was responsive. 
His face contorted in pain, but he did not respond. And then I noticed a tiny change take place where the bullet had struck. It didn't bleed. Right where the bullet had entered his body emerged a yellow dot that grew bigger. I stepped back in repulsion. In rapid motion, the dot grew into fingers that protruded like a snake, growing until it was nearly a foot out of his gunshot wound. His torso began to move and expand like a balloon, until the tearing of skin revealed those monstrous tendrils of orange sprouting forth from my colleague's body. The soldiers held me until a medevac helicopter could arrive at the field nearby. I sat there, the soldiers a good 30 feet away, staring at the body of Jair Damani. He was 43. When I got back to my hotel in Jakarta, I knew what I had to do. First, I had to make a difficult phone call to the family of Jair Damani, and since I didn't speak Indonesian, I don't think they really understood me. Next, I had to warn people. This thing evolved so quickly, Lisa, and the speed at which it proliferates is like something from a B-movie horror film. I urgently gave them the account that I just gave you, and then sent the CDC some pictures of the orangutans with the fungi, as well as the data that Dr. Damani had sent me previously. I waited in that hotel room anxiously, staring out into the busy traffic street below. Mopeds and bikes went by, all these people, oblivious to the fact that just 90 miles away in the jungle lay something of unspeakable horror. My phone rang and I picked it up. It was Dr. Mike Haynes from Urethesis Defense, who now heads the Mycotics Disease Branch of the CDC. Mike, you need to get your folks on this ASAP. Whoa, whoa, Greg. Cordyceps that infect what? Mammals? Humans? You know how improbable that sounds. Yes, Mike, but I'm telling you. I saw it. My friend. Dr. Jahir Dema. Greg, we're talking about a massive phylum-sized jump of a fungus from insects to mammals. I looked at the pictures, Greg. I think you're jumping to conclusions there. Those could be a variety of other suspects. You had to jump to cordyceps. Mike, did you look at the nuclear ribosomal data from Damati? I don't need to, Mike. This, this is science fiction. The mammalian physiology. It just wouldn't support a fungal infection to the extent you're claiming. Did you drink the water there or something, Greg? I tell this to my colleagues and I'll become a, a laughingstock. We talked for a few more minutes as I desperately tried to get him to take me seriously, but I failed. He hung up and I tried to call every reputable mycologist, animal physiologist, and entomologist that I knew. They all responded with similar levels of incredulity. I prayed like I never did before in my entire life that that thing did not come out of the jungle. Given what happened to Barukeshu, an entire village, in the span of a week... It chills me to my core to think what would happen to a city like Samarinda, or even Jakarta. Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world, population-wise. This is a ticking time bomb, and we need to get it contained, or the consequences will be catastrophic and hellish. I'll set up a meeting with the Ministry of Health tomorrow. Warmly, Greg.
Another email a day after. Elisa, the meeting was a disaster. The Director General of the Indonesian equivalent of VCDC, Dr. I.D. McMurr, practically laughed in my face, accusing me of being a victim of old wives' tales from the jungle backwaters. Nobody's listening. I hope that at least you can believe me, Lisa, even when I can barely believe myself. I am leaving Jakarta for Oakland tomorrow, but I haven't slept for days. I am simply exhausted. Greg. At this point, my MacBook had died. I grunted in frustration, pulled out my iPhone, and proceeded to check if the signal had come back on my phone as well. It did. I proceeded to check my email from there. The next email came a week later. It was a blank email with the subject in all caps. Goodbye. It has started. Just in the middle of downloading, I heard the long blast of the ship's horn. The ship had arrived in Argentina. I remember when I first passed through the city of Yushaha. It's a decently populated port town at the tip of the Tierra del Fuego in Argentina. It's a jumble of colorful houses and shipping containers surrounded by these massive snow-capped mountains. On a typical day, it's crowded with ships and tourists as it's the primary hub for Antarctic tourism, as the continent is only 48 hours away by boat. However, as we pulled into the Beagle Channel, which normally bustles with boat traffic, we noticed something was wrong. No boats, not a single one. In fact, as we pulled into the port, not a single boat remained at the pier. I stood at the deck of the G-Palm along with everybody else, five including the captain. Carlos Rivera, an astronomy postdoc from Princeton University, was the first to say it. Where is everybody? Even as we began to disembark, we could sense the eerie quiet of the entire town. No cars, no people, not even a stray dog. We began to disembark slowly with unease. Aguen esta aquí. Rivera cupped his hands and yelled, Aguen. His voice echoes through the still streets. With no response, we decided to walk around the town. We passed an empty park with a sign with the town's motto, Yushua, fin del mundo, principal de todo, end of the world, beginning of everything. However, Yushua and Principio de Toto had been crossed out hurriedly in spray paint. We began to walk uphill towards the mountains, and we began to notice things. Like how some cars were parked haphazardly in the middle of the road, with their doors open like it was abandoned in a hurry. Doors were broken or unlocked. There was a crashed ambulance that hit a fire hydrant, which apparently had since stopped flowing. Grocery stores were near empty with shelves tipped over like dominoes. There was a police barricade with abandoned police cars that looked like they were trying to keep something out. What was more surprising, though, was the clothes that were scattered everywhere. Winter jackets, pants, shirts, dressed, all thrown on the ground as if the townsfolk all decided to rapidly undress. And did the rapture happen or something? muttered someone in the group. Nobody responded. We then came across a white building with words hurriedly painted in faded red spray paint. It looked recent, 
yet faded and crusting from the exposure. Yo, Rivera, what does this say? Rivera came by and squinted. The handwriting was messy and almost indecipherable as if written in a rush, or a panic. Circa, oh Dios de ti. Closer, God, to you. Like, nearer. God to thee? Like the Titanic, someone in the group muttered after a pause. The group fell silent. After an easy few seconds, Diego quickly added, ah, Come on, guys, it's only graffiti. It doesn't have to mean something bad. His voice trailed off. I brushed my hand against the graffiti and noticed how the letters began to flake off of my hand. A familiar, coppery smell. What's wrong, Lisa? My hands were shaking, and not just from the cold. I heard a metallic clank and realized that I had stepped on something. A blood-crusted knife, still moist. I think it's blood. I then looked down the street and my breath stopped cold. We looked around and it was everywhere. Circa Odios de ti. Painted across almost every house in the block in blood. Then beyond the barricade, there was a white wooden church. Its steeple collapsed, evidently from fire damage. That wasn't what caught our eye, however. In big bold letters in the same crimson hue as the graffiti was a big arrow pointing up into the side along with these scribbled letters in English. God is nowhere. God is nowhere, someone read. Where did he go then? scoffed Rivera, who was known to be open the atheist. No, no, it, it doesn't say that, I realized. I pointed to the space between the W and the age. I think it says, God is now here. The arrows pointed to the mountain peak. There, barely visible to us, appeared to be something, scattered on the snow of the mountain. I took out my camera and began to zoom in on the summit. There seemed to be thousands of tiny dots of various colors, brown, pinkish, all gathered around the top. I squinted and zoomed in, and then I realized. The details were blurry, but I could make out human shapes with large, orange masses protruding from all over their bodies. They're people. Guys, I think I know where everybody went, I faltered, trying to think about how to break the news. The barricades aren't to keep something out, guys. It was meant to keep something in. You're going to want to hear this. I pulled out the emails on the phone and began to read out loud everything that Dr. Kleinhardt had told me. The last email from Dr. Kleinhardt had already finished downloading, so I read that out loud as well. Subject. Goodbye. It has started. Stay. Lisa, I'm typing this as I stand atop the Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco. It's begun. The spread. Jakarta fell the week after I left, and then Kuala Lumpur, and then Hong Kong, and then Chennai. In three days, it had reached London and Doha. Despite travel restrictions, we heard reports that it had arrived in Mexico City yesterday. Have you seen the news reports, Lisa? The videos of the bodies of those construction workers from Hong Kong, on top of that skyscraper site, and the bodies that crowd the minarets in Cairo. 
The photos of the Champ de Mars deserted, except for the Eiffel Tower completely filled with the fruiting corpses of the infected climbers. Everywhere panic, followed by chaos and followed by silence. Entire cities and their inhabitants have turned to dust. This is the balance of nature, Lisa. The same reason why almost every known insect has their own distinct species of parasitic cordyceps. When a population gets too big or too destructive, nature has its way of thinning the herd. We plundered and polluted land and sea for greed. We destroyed millions of acres of wetland, reefs, and rainforests. By doing so, we are meeting with things that were always meant to be apart from humans. We're not masters of the earth. We are guests living on borrowed time. We disrupted an equilibrium we saw, and with every action comes an equally devastating reaction. Is it any wonder that these pandemics keep appearing every other decade until eventually nature decides that we're no longer worth keeping around? I tried Lisa to warn them, but they just did not want to listen. Billions of men, women, and children are gone because I failed Lisa. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Do you remember when I helped you edit your dissertation, Lisa? How we discussed how humans and Mycelium have a common ancestor. How our genomes are nearly the same. The beauty of fungi is that they can connect in a way that human minds never could. This is goodbye, Lisa. I can feel it inside. I'm going home. The email ended there. There were 10, maybe 15 minutes of silence. The wind howled and the waves crashed in the distance. After a while, the questions came. So it's a fungus, uh, like a mushroom. Yes. But it infects people and what? Kills them? If it works like Cordyceps militaris, the species that infects ants, I think it works like this, but I'm not sure. The fungus takes over the central nervous system and forces the victim to have convulsions. It grows in the body until the victim is more mycelium than human. Eventually, I think the fungus hijacks the motor neurons and compels the victims to go somewhere high up. That's why they climb trees, towers, mountains. People, driven by the neurotoxins flooding their systems, begin to strip their clothes off so that the fungus has a better chance of distributing spores when the ascocarps, the fruiting bodies, I faltered, feeling nauseous, mature out of the host's body. Based on Dr. Kleinhardt and Greg's reports, this strain of cordyceps is especially airborne and contagious, and the cordyceps has a reproduction cycle, unlike any fungi that we've ever seen. So, it's all over the world then, it seems like. Carlos dismally said. Yeah, that's why we haven't been getting any singles from the outside. No resupply chefs, no nothing. This is it, guys. We need to find all the supplies we can get. Uh, I don't think there's going to be another place to restock. And we decided to split two ways. Carlos and the captain would go back to the harbor to prepare the ship. The rest of us three would go to the pier and find the necessary supplies to bring back to the research station. As we began to haul bags of rice and medicine back to the pier, I heard a strange hissing sound, like a whistle in the wind. 
and then it got louder. I turned around and it was coming from the mountains. From the peak, there was a haze almost imperceptible at first, but we could see it coming rapidly as it began to cover the sky. Within 20 seconds, the sky had turned a sickly orange color. I shuddered when I realized what it was. I dropped what I was carrying. We need to leave now. When we left the port, we realized truly how alone we were. A small vessel in the vast and turbulent ocean of the unknown. Yet when we looked back, there it still is, the orange sky, advancing mile by mile closer towards us. My old fast food job had the worst rules. Written by Sawyer the Sadist. Hey there, welcome to Redacted. What can I get for you today? The fat man across the counter didn't respond. He instead stared up behind me with squinted eyes, smacking his lips as if he was already eating our sodium-rich garbage. I waited patiently with a smile while he continued to gawk at the menu. What does a combo come with? Well, sir, our combos come with one of our main menu items, your choice of side and one of our refreshing fountain drinks. I responded with a smile. The man still didn't bother to look at me. He smacked his lips and then said, Um, I'll have three combos. Okay, sir, what would you like for the mains? Um, I want one with fries, one with onion rings, and one with coleslaw. Excellent choice, sir. But for the mains, two Cokes, one Sprite, all large. Uh, sir, could you please actually make one of the fries a large? Sir, the way this works is I need to hit the main buttons first. And then I want five packets of your sweet chili sauce that I can ring in, actually. And hey, what does it say I'm being charged $2 for sauce? Uh, sir, we have a small fee on all our sauce packets that don't come with a main meal. It's been in effect for her. I'm not paying $2 for sauce packets. He was looking at me now, alright. Uh, okay, well. Hey, Johnny! Some skinny kid with overdone hair suddenly said, slapping my arm. I notice you don't have gloves on. I got you, uh. I don't need gloves to work cash. Hey, I'm talking to you. Sir, if you will. Johnny, gloves. I don't need gloves. Hello? Hey, quit holding up the line. Some lady chimed in from out the door. Oh, screw off, you old hag. Sir, please, I'll take the sauce out of the order. Now, can you just... What the heck did you just call me? I don't have to pay for sauce with my meal boy. And you heard me back there. Johnny, is there a problem? Patty said, running out of his office. He doesn't want to pay for the sauce. I shouldn't have to if it's with a meal. Okay, sir, just calm down, Terry said, taking over my till. What meal did you want exactly? Chicken fingers, I wanted. Oh, come on, I screamed. Thank you and have a good day, I said to the woman, with the truest smile that I had had all day. 
For a while, I was ringing in her order. I watched that clock tick to the magical hour that marks me being finally able to go home. There was a smile that stuck on my face as I walked away from the till, grabbed my coat, and was immediately wiped off my face when Patty approached me and said, Hey Johnny, can I talk to you for a minute? Patty's office was this little nook in the restaurant that probably was intended to be a closet. Even with this chair pushed all the way into the corner of the wall, and me clinging onto the door, we maybe had less than a foot of space between us. Patty sighed, staring at the floor and biting his lap, while I stood trying to keep the doorknob from poking my back. He wasn't the kind of man that I could ever come to respect, but out of all the bosses that I've had, he really wasn't that bad. Look, I started to say when he declined to speak. About today, you gotta understand. Buddy-wise, he raised a hand. It's done, Johnny. Not worth reliving it. He still wouldn't look me in the eye. Oh, I replied. So, why am I here then? He paused another moment, staring ahead. Raymond quit, he finally said. Oh, hey, good for him. He finally looked up to me with a discerning face at that. He was one of the only two shift managers who could work nights, and Deb Duel already has so many hours in that well. He looked away again and let out another sigh. Johnny, would you like a promotion? I paused for a minute. What? Patty sighed again. You're the most experienced out of everyone here, and I need someone to cover for tomorrow night. So... I get, uh, I get to be in charge. Do you think you can handle it, Johnny? I smiled. Patty sighed, shaking his head. First things first, he said, grabbing a piece of paper off his desk and handing it to me. Night shift is a bit different than what you're used to during the day. We've got um a few extra rules that you'll need to follow. My smile faded. Now I know some of those might seem silly, Johnny, but I'm telling you now. It's imperative that you follow everything on the list to a T. You also need to make sure the other employees follow them as well, seeing as you'll be the boss. I'm leaving my personal number as well as Abdul's at the bottom of the page, in case you have any questions or something comes up. You got this, Johnny? I looked down at the list and then back up to Patty, then using a trick taught to me by my dear brother and mastered through the art of fast food service. I put on my best smile. Got it. I pulled my beater into our shady little lot, marching my way in with my best smile and my new black-colored uniform. Jerry, the evening manager, greeted me with a blank face. The growing black circles under his eyes really said more than his expression. Patty wanted me to ask, you read the night shift rules? Nope, I replied. You see, a long time ago I had been hired by a company for a security position, in which I had also been given a list of rules. After having lost said list, I later found them crumpled in my pocket, just when I happened to be searching for emergency toilet paper. Since then, it's become one of my life's mottos. Only good use for a list of rules is toilet paper. He shrugged and grabbed his coat. Alright then, I'm off. Try not to blow the place up, Johnny. 11.03 p.m. Ding. The drive-thru headset rang in my ear. 
A smile crept across my face as I turned on my mic. Good evening and welcome to a stroke on the go. How, how can I... I began to snicker uncontrollably as the rest of the staff stared at me. Um, hi? The man said on the other end as I continued to chuckle. Can I get a number 13 large? Um, I turned to one of the crew. What's number 13? I was gonna ask you. Crap, can someone look at the menu? The skinny kid that had pestered me about the gloves the previous day rushed over to the counter and stared at the menu. Uh, Johnny, I don't, I don't think we have a number 13. No, uh, uh, sir, we don't have a 13. Is there something else you might want? Uh, I see it right on the menu. We're out of that item, sir. Sir. A girl with red hair pulled open the window and peered out. Um, I think he left, she said. Uh, well, one less problem for us. I replied with a smile. 11.37pm Okay, seriously, this is going to start to get awkward if I don't know any of your names. What are you people called? Cassie, said the red-haired girl. Toby, the skinny kid said with a smile. Uh, name's Niles, said the chubby man who flipped burgers. Cool, I replied. So how many of you have worked the night shift before? No one said anything. Other than the skinny kid who started going off about being new, but I ignored him. Wonderful. Alright, this is how it's gonna work. No one snitches to Patty and we all. Another ding. The front door ringed as it opened. Okay, seriously guys, did no one lock the door? You never told us to, said Cassie. Wait, we locked the door? I thought we were 24-7, said the skinny boy. Drive through only at night. Niles chimed in. From the front of the restaurant, a pair of heels clicked rapidly across the floor as this tiny little figure trotted away up to the counter. She looked at us and smiled. Alright, it's okay guys, I got this. I approached the woman who still held her grin. Hi, she said. I would like to get... Oh, I'm sorry ma'am, but the interior of the restaurant closed at 11. My underlings just forgot to lock up. If you would like, however, you can walk yourself around to our drive through windows, squat down and hold your hands out like you're driving a tiny invisible car. And my fine workers will be more than happy to provide artery-clogging nourishment to you and your imaginary vehicle. She paused for a moment, still holding the grand. I don't think she even blinked. Hi, she said again. The pitch a tad higher this time. I would like to get... I'm sorry, madam, but as I just said, we can... The Susan special, she spoke over to me. Extra rare, if you will. I stared at her for a moment. You want a what now? Susan special. Her lips stretched a little wider. Extra rare. Okay, first of all, I don't know when the heck that is, and second, you want it rare? Seriously, lady, I know you probably haven't seen where the food comes from, but I'm pretty sure my boss just tips the inspector. And third, like I said, we closed in the restaurant. No service here. Bye-bye. What happened next is what started to make me feel uncomfortable. See, I was expecting this lady to maybe get upset and ask for the manager. Only for me, with all my enthusiasm, to inform her of my new status and kick her butt to the curb. A fantasy that I've had for so long, I'm honestly shocked that I've never acted on it. 
The smile didn't go away though instead. She tilted her head slightly and slowly, like maybe she was a bit confused. It kept going though, bending until it was a full 90 degrees sideways. I would really like this special now. I'm in a hurry. I looked to the rest of the crew who were now watching this whole ordeal and then back to the lady. Okay, I said with a sigh. I'm gonna make this clear for you. No. In an instant, the smile was gone and suddenly she snarled, lunging over the counter and grabbing onto my uniform, pulling in for a bite. Oh, Jesus Christ, I yelled out, doing my best to hold her off. What the heck? Cassie screeched. Oh, sh- Oh! Help! Someone help! She's freaking rabid! I hollered as her fingers started clawing at my face. Gosh dang it, Toby! Get the mop! The mop! Just grab it, Toby! And a big chomp. I screamed as she bit into my arm. Toby ran into the back, nearly crashing into Niles who was running out of the kitchen for help. Niles ran beside me and grabbed her by the arms, trying to force her off. Holy crap, she's strong, he said. You're telling me, buddy. Toby ran back out, clutching the mop tightly to his chest. Okay, okay, what do I do? What do I... Hit her, Toby. What? Don't just stand there, whack her. Why, but will I get in? Gosh dang it, Toby, whack the lady. She snarled again, flinging bits of saliva onto my face. And Toby ran in and slammed the mop on her, and when she didn't let go, we hit her again and again and again and again and again. Cassie finally flew in and punched her straight in the nose, finally breaking me free. Keep hitting, I yelled. Whack, smack, bam, kablam. Unified and working with such teamwork, it would probably make our franchise's master really happy. We punted that savage madwoman all the way across the room and right out the door which the four of us promptly pushed shut, and with a satisfying click, the demon Karen left to bang and slobber all over the glass. You'll pay for this, she screeched. I want my special and I want it now. Now! No special for you. Johnny, Niles said, putting a hand on my arm. Johnny, maybe don't taunt her. Is that glass gonna hold? Cassie asked. More bamming. Now! Uh, I said, I sure hope so. Should I call the police? The skinny kid asked. Nah, I think she'll probably get bored. What? Why not? No cops while I'm in charge, Toby. That's one of my rules. Don't question it. 12.30am. Why can't we call the cops? I said don't question it, Cassie. Bruh, that woman just went full on primal on your butt. How can you not... No questioning, me, manager. But she's still, eh. Niles trailed off. I looked back out the door. The woman was nowhere to be seen. See, I said. Solved itself, no need for cops. Alright, everyone, back to the normal things. I went behind the counter and I helped myself to a free soda. Cassie pulled herself under the drive-thru window and went back on her phone. Niles did something, I'm sure it was important and the skinny kid just started following me around. Uh, sir, he said, while I began to pour my drink. What do you want, Toby? I'm just not really sure what to do, I sighed, and this guy was determined to be one of those types. I don't know, man, go clean the bathroom or something. It sounds like something we're supposed to do. Okay, right away. 
A delighted smile spread across his face as soon as I gave the order. I let out another sigh as soon as he ran off. Uh, guys? Cassie suddenly called out. Anyone else just lost service? I whipped out my phone. Huh, mine's gone too. Niles? Johnny, he suddenly hollered. Niles, me and Cassie lost service, did you? Never mind that, just come here. I walked into the kitchen with Cassie following behind me. Niles was staring dumbfounded at one of the grills in the corner of the room. This was not here when we came in. What? This grill? I'm pretty sure that we have grills, Niles. We have three, Johnny, three, and there are four now. Okay, Niles, buddy. You holding on me. I won't snitch, but Sharon is Karen, bro. No, Johnny, he's right. Cassie butted in. We have three grills at least. I thought we did. Okay, well, that's weird then. Bruh, this kind of stuff, it doesn't happen. The drive through headset went off again. Hey, Cassie, can you go get that? I said before turning back to Niles. Well, buddy, I guess find out if it works. 1.37 a.m. Hey, where the heck did Toby go? Cassie suddenly asked me. I sent him to go clean the bathroom. Like, what, an hour ago? Yeah, so... Um, maybe you should go check on him? I sighed, sat up, and strolled over to the washroom. Hey, Toby, Toby, you... Holy crap! My jaw dropped to the floor as I opened that door. It was, well, let's put it this way. Imagine you were to take a person, turn them inside out, and then blow them up. If this doesn't paint the picture for you, imagine blood and bits of brain and flakes of skin covering the walls. Organs hanging off the toilet garbage can, the mirror end of the diaper station. And the skeleton had the legs blown clean off. I don't know what happened to him. The torso, however, was upside down head first into the toilet bowl. On the mirror was a nice little message. We should have given her the special. Johnny, Johnny, what is... Oh my god! Cassie shrieked. Cassie, Cassie, what the heck do we do? Oh my god, oh my god. Hey guys, is everything... Oh! Niles didn't scream when he entered the room like me and Cassie. Instead, he went stiff like a plank. Didn't talk, didn't move, just stood there, taking it all in. Okay, he finally said. I'm calling the cops. No, I screamed. No cops, none. The heck do you mean? Toby looks like he just went through a freaking blender. Just uh, look. I may or may not have been trying to sell some blow to the cop back in Alberta. And yeah, I don't want to move again, Niles. Let's just... I slowly closed the bathroom door. There, like we never saw it. And the morning crew can deal with it. Yeah, Niles said. I'm calling the cops. No, Niles, no. Don't try to stop me, Johnny. Niles, I'm acting manager if you don't stop. I promise there will be a very strongly worded letter. Niles didn't reply. He picked up our landline and began dialing. Hello, he said. I'm calling from... Arr! Niles' eyes shot wide as I charged him, tackling the oaf to the ground. Johnny, what the... I said, don't do it, Niles, I said. Get off. No. Hello, hello, yes. Is this the police? Oh, crap, Cassie. Cassie, no. I dropped Niles to run at her, only for him to grab me from behind. I got him. Get them over here. No, I said no, I say. Yes, we're at... I'm sorry, how do you know my name? I stopped struggling. 
Niall stopped yelling, though he didn't let go. Cassie turned to look at us, and the phone still pressed to her ear. Her eyes were as wide as dinner plates. Suddenly, she slammed the phone down. It... it was her, she said. 2.13 a.m. Her? The one crazy lady? I exclaimed, still in Niall's chokehold. Poor Cassie didn't reply. Just let out a frightened whimper and nodded her head. Suddenly, Niles dropped me. I fell hard on the floor. That's it, he said. Johnny, tell Patty that I quit. I'm getting the heck out. Hold that thought, Niles, I replied. We'll leave a sick note. I say this is getting too spooky for me, too. Same, said Cassie. The three of us marched away out the door and into the parking lot. Well, what the? explained Niles. Hey guys, does anyone else remember the parking lot being this big? It was like it went on forever. Endless parking spaces, endless eerie nightlights. Where this the city would be, my dream come true. Currently, however, it made me feel concerned that we hadn't really left the restaurant and also couldn't find my car. 2.45 a.m. Niles! Niles! I called out into the kitchen. Last time I had entered, we counted 42 microwaves, 72 fryers, and 102 grills. Now looking into it was like staring into a jungle of unnecessary kitchen appliances. Somewhere in that mass, I could smell the meat cooking. Didn't really want to go in though. 3.35 AM We managed to bandage Niles' wounded arm with the packaging for our hamburgers, using the sweet and sour sauce as glue. According to him, some of the appliances inside the kitchen came to life and formed a primitive yet sophisticated society, aside from the fact they weren't above eating human flesh. If you ask me, however, I don't really blame the microwave society for thinking us as food. We are a different species as them, and though intelligent, I myself enjoy a nice octopus when the opportunity arises. So who am I to judge? Still, we have sealed off the kitchen by throwing chairs in front of the door, Cassia sharpened all the mop handles to fine points, and Niles stole one fryer, so we have hot grease in our arsenal. We also had to push the ice cream machine in front of the drive through window. Understandably, Cassie and I reacted poorly when the first customer showed up with no face. Like, why even get food if you don't have a mouth? After that experience, we decided to just tell everybody that we were closed, and they didn't like that. Anyways... The friar Niles took just asked what the purpose of its existence was. 4.01am. The roaches and the mice have allied themselves. They have claimed the soda fountain. 4.13am. Toby's alive. Apparently the idiot was cleaning the other washroom as we fell asleep. And the shadow men woke him up. They were spooky at first but his manager. I'm enforcing a strict don't talk to them policy. Which seems to be working. I wish they would keep it down, though. 4.24 a.m. It wasn't Toby. 4.49 a.m. We were forced to retreat into the appliance jungle. An angry customer pulled the ice cream machine through the wall. Once he actually had it, he left with it, saying that it was all he really wanted. But suddenly, being exposed to the unending line of customers we had been neglecting for over an hour, we decided to brave the microwaves. That and war had broken out between the Pest Alliance and the Shadow People, and though it looked like neither side was actually winning, no one felt like getting caught in the crossfire. 
Currently, we are scavenging for french fries in the Friar wetlands. Though our hunt was very successful, the friars have been requesting us to leave. Also, I swear, somewhere in the grill forest, I can hear the beeping. 5.30am. We barely escaped the kitchen alive. On the service floor, the casualties from the war have been many. It appears that there were in fact no survivors. The drive through lineup appears to have subsided though. No more cars, just an empty, endless parking lot stretching into the void. I don't like looking into it. And there was also a message left for us next to the register. Crudely scratched into the counter, it read, I want my special. We are resharpening the mop handles. 5.59am. The cow goes. We all die in the end, Johnny. All of us, even you, even Kelly, even Sawyer. Nothing but dust in the wind on a dying planet in a dying universe. Adams aged to Johnny and their bonds weaken. Their energy wanes and soon, all that is left is the ash of what was. Except for Susan, Johnny. Susan is special. Special Susan wants Susan special. You should have given Susan her special, Johnny. <laughs> Silly murder cow, me manager. No special for you, Susan. 7 a.m. Johnny! Ah! I screamed, kicking back and preparing to flee from the monstrosity. Only to see Patty staring down at me. Johnny, are you okay? What the heck happened? Oh, it was all an awful dream. God, Patty, you wouldn't. Why are we outside? Johnny... He cut me off. Where's the restaurant? I stood up and whooped around. We were in the parking lot, where the restaurant used to be. However, there was nothing but dirt. Leveled, pancake-flat dirt with nothing, but the drive through menu sticking out of the ground. Uh, I stammered. Well, you see, the thing is... Johnny... Patty said, staring dead ahead into the void that used to be our fine restaurant. You're fired. There's a reason NASA wants to destroy the International Space Station. Written by The Silent Observer. I've worked at NASA for almost 30 years. Long enough that I got to see the ISS get put into orbit. It's generally regarded as one of the best things that we've ever done, and I agree. The amount of scientific data, discovery, disaster observation, it's just priceless. We'd all be living in a worse world without that hunk of metal orbiting our planet. It's a strange feeling to see everyone talking about taking it out of the sky. On one hand, the thing is getting pretty old. It was built for around 15 years of operation, but it's been functional for 21 now. On the other, I'm well, a little sentimental. Maybe all the talk of dismantling it is making me feel old. Pretext first. There are many things that I'm not going to tell you about myself for obvious reasons, but I can tell you my experience with NASA. They're very open about things inside the agency as well as outside. A lot of people like to think NASA is holding some serious secrets, but that's just not true. Sometimes you can't walk 20 feet without hearing a young, excited scientist 
nerding out about some new discovery or theory to their colleagues. Management puts it how it is because in this line of work, everyone needs to know if anyone miscalculates and it can mean disaster. All big scientific discoveries are put on paper within 24 hours and released to the public. You get the whole picture. Point is, in 30 years of working here, I have never encountered much dishonesty unless a politician walked in the door. I know everyone really well, and we get along just fine. Recent events have changed everything. The excited chatter has mostly stopped. The US government has people in suits crawling all over the place. And the higher-ups obviously haven't gotten sleep since it was announced that the ISS was to be decommissioned. Despite all this, we're to continue like it's business as usual. But every now and then, one of us will get called up for an interview with the suits. Sometimes they'll be gone for a few minutes. Sometimes they'd be gone for hours. But when they would return to work, we would all ask what was going on. And every time we would get the same answer. The suits would bring them into a room with a table. Ask them some confusing, uncontextual questions. And then let them go. It's not hard for us to connect the dots. Something happened in regards to the ISS. Most of us are closed off from upper management now. And those who can talk to them have that look in their eye. The look begging you not to talk to them, but they can tell you not to. Everyone else is as confused as I am, and work is slow to a crawl. Occasionally, we'll get an exciting announcement that renews our wondrous exploratory child brains, but for the most part, it's become dreary. A few days in, I got pulled into a room with the suits. There were a lot of formalities to get through, like my name, age, place of birth, etc. But then the question started. Their demeanor changed on a dime as soon as the first word was spoken. And given what that question was, I would have laughed if I hadn't been dragged into a room with government agents. What is your opinion on the color green? I didn't know how to respond at first, but eventually I said... I guess it's an okay color. I mean, it's not my favorite, but it's nice. I remember feeling like I was back in elementary school, with the entire class talking about what color was the best. It was awkward, and due to the situation, quite jarring. Below, I got the rest of the questions and my responses that I remember. Do you have any aspirations besides working at NASA? I mean, I've got a bucket list, skydiving, seeing the world, that kind of thing. And do you believe you will come to complete that bucket list? Well, yeah, I'm gotta retire at some point, right? Oh, good. Do you wish upon falling stars? What? No, that's ridiculous. If you did, is there anything you would wish for? Uh, well, I don't know. Biological immortality... Do you hang posters in your room? Not since I was a kid, no. What's the one thing you consider objectively good? Kittens? I said it in jest, of course. Sometimes I try and break the tension with a little comedy, and it was out of my mouth before I knew what I was saying. Even so, 
I at least expected a slight smile before I was scolded. But the only thing the agent did was straighten his tie and repeat the question with a somehow even more serious look. Uh, fine, fine. Making sure those around you live their best lives, I suppose. You suppose? No, I, uh, figure of, no, that doesn't apply. Listen, this is awkward, and I stick by what I said. Final answer. Can we move on? It was at this point that I realized that when the agent had straightened his tie, it had changed from a formal black to a dark green. Either the agent had just pulled a magic trick with the smoothness of someone from Vegas, or I just hadn't realized it had been green the entire time. The brain has a tendency to find patterns and to lie to you, so in that moment I brushed it off. But the other two agents in the room still had black ties on. Yes, we can. Tell me, what is sound? Well, airwaves, specifically vibrations. Right now when you speak, you're sending air particles crashing into each other, sending them to me, and my ears are picking it up. Do you mind if we take your temperature? No, I had mine taken at the door, but uh, I guess you can hear too. It was true, the agents had been taking everyone's temperature at the door these days. I didn't know why they would need to do it a second time, but I wasn't about to argue. One of them walked over and used an unbranded digital temperature gun. After they had finished, the agent nodded to the others and I was escorted back to my floor and told to have a pleasant day. I was bombarded with questions from my colleagues, as was everyone else who had gotten interviewed, but I didn't really have much of anything new to say. After that day, I started doing a bit of investigating. I had only been interviewed for a few minutes, so I started asking for specifics from those who had been taken for far longer. As far as the questions themselves go, I had no luck. They were still ridiculous. Things like, have you tasted dog water? Or have you ever gone hiking? But there are some consistencies too. When I brought up the green tie, they said they saw the same but they had brushed it off for the same reasons I did. The temperature check. It happens at the end of every interview to everyone regardless of time. But for those who had gotten interviewed for an hour, there was another through line. All of them were asked what the International Space Station was to them. At this point, I knew for absolute certain that something was being kept from us regarding the ISS. No more rumors and no more speculation. No more conspiracy theories. The agents were interested in our space station too. And I had to get to the bottom of this. So I contacted the guys in charge of doing the math for weight on the next supply run to the ISS. Did I mention that they're still sending things up there? Because they are. Apparently they were in a tough spot. Usually you know exactly what is going into space. You have to for literal hundreds of safety reasons but the agents had been interfering since they had appeared. They'd say something new had been added to the list, tell them the wait and then inform them that they needed to update their math to include the mystery item. It was so against code that they tried to take it up to management several times, but every time management shot them down. I was told that one guy was considering quitting in protest due to how unsafe 
just randomly adding unknown things to a spacecraft was. But the next day, someone else showed up in his position. The kid was friendly excited and under the impression the position had been left vacant for a while. He had no idea that he had just replaced someone. I tried to get into contact with the person that was fired but no dice. The phone number must have been bad and I didn't know him well enough to get in contact with him any other way. Decided given the situation it was a bad idea for me to do so anyways. Those agents kept giving me stares when I started asking for his number. But I had been working there for 30 years and I had my contacts. I decided to hit up some of the old ISS crew members. I was buddy-buddy with a few of them, even taking them out for drinks on occasion. I had been joking with a few of them not even a few months ago, and while our current predicament probably had nothing to do with them, I had to be certain. I went through every single number, but they all went to voicemail. I know people sometimes change their numbers, but all of them? I branched out beyond the U.S. I wasn't too close to these guys, but I had still shared a beer with a few of them. Still nothing. Not a peep. Nothing but the robotic voice telling me to leave a message after the tone. At this point, I got anxious. Not a single ISS astronaut was answering the phone. I knew there were a few of them that lived and started compiling the addresses. But while searching them up, I came across their pages. They all have Google profiles, of course, but now all of them had death dates. I sat there shocked as I saw my co-workers, friends and associates all described as having died while in the woods and gas explosions or car accidents. Even a serial killer had gotten one of them. I read into that one, by the way. Someone had broken into their home, a family of four. I'll spare you the details, but by the time police arrived, it was too late for any of them. Allegedly, the killer was high on several narcotics and died of overdose while being arrested. Several murders had been linked to him, in fact. I was shocked and heartbroken. No one had ever told me, and the way the guy went out was devastating. But then I looked at the date of the murder. I had to check my calendar. But there it was. I had taken the astronaut, his family, and several co-workers out to a movie, not three days after the article said that he died. It was to celebrate his full recovery after staying in the ISS so long. Things that didn't line up. And while most of the death dates made sense, some others didn't correlate with my calendar either. After I compiled all of their addresses, I took a look at the properties. All of them were closed down due to one thing or another. A gas leak had burned one down. One of them had left the stove on. A local forest fire had destroyed another. Every single house was gone. At this point, I had to see it all with my own eyes. So, after work the next day, I went on a half-hour drive to one of the closer residences. It had been a month or so, but the property was owned by one of my closer buddies, so it wouldn't be too strange to see me around the area. Sure enough, the house was a smoldering ruin. Didn't even look like it had happened that long ago. Maybe a day at most. There was even a fire truck still outside with firefighters sorting through it all. I was going to pull up and ask them what had happened, but then I spotted a black van across the way. 
more government agents. I didn't want to be seen here, so I just drove by like anyone else would and didn't make eye contact. It could have been my paranoia, but I swore that I could feel their gaze burning into the back of my skull. Now I knew. Every single ISS crewmate was gone under mysterious circumstances. I think it's the government itself, but I don't understand why. I would like to believe they aren't actually dead. Just in a holding cell somewhere until this all blows over. But I just don't know. And to make matters worse, I was approached to work the next day. Agents, of course. They didn't bring up any specifics, they just said. The same thing they'd been saying from day one. Don't interfere with their business and everything will be just fine. And then they left. And the day continued as per usual. That scared me half to death though. My mind was running through the possibility that they were going to make me disappear too. And it took every ounce of mental strength that I had not to look like I was caught. Not even sure I did look normal that day to be honest. I had lost a lot of sleep and I was living off of coffee. As of now, rumors about weapons being smuggled onto the ISS are circulating. No one is allowed to go to the upper floors now, and people are starting to get replaced faster and faster. One of my colleagues who had been doing some investigating of his own said he looked at the ISS through his telescope, and he swears to God that it was spinning out of control and half covered in something black. I took a look myself, but I couldn't find the station at all. It's definitely not on its projected orbital path. No one outside the agency is talking about this. For all the public knows, NASA plans to decommission the ISS in 2031 and land its remains on Point Nemo, which I will add is the furthest point from human civilization on the planet. They even deny letting museums keep pieces of it opting to just get rid of the darn thing. I'm too afraid to go to the press about it. I don't want to be replaced because I'm pretty sure everyone who does isn't just going back home unemployed. And those agents, they've asserted even more control. I pretty much directly report to them now, and they're the only ones that go upstairs. No one has seen anyone from upper management in weeks. And to make matters worse, I haven't even seen the agents express a hint of remorse or any emotion, really. It's just the stone-cold stare 24-7. I'm starting to think they're robots. I'm also starting to think that I'm going crazy. Like I've been cooped up in a cage for too long, with eyes on me at every waking moment. Does anyone have any idea what's going on? I need to get out of this before I end up in a cell, or worse. I think they know that I'm looking into it, and I don't know what I'm going to do. My friends are gone along with half my colleagues. I just feel helpless. I'm a soldier at the Omega military base. The rules are weird and terrifying. Written by Dicker Mox. Hey there, I'm Jason. I'm German and I'm in the army. The 12th Motor Brigade. I know, interesting, huh? I didn't think so, and things weren't interesting for a while, until yesterday. I'm here to tell you my three-year experience at Site Omega. 
from driving a patrol and inspecting trucks carrying suspicious cargo to being put on guard duty at the base proper. So this mess all started when the Sarge came up to me and said, Look, Jace, you've done a lot for the regiment and I thank you, but I need to ask you a favor. I need you on night patrol duty. What? I began. Now, I wouldn't have asked you if we had someone else available, but Heinrich's on leave. Carl's recovering from injuries and Fritz. Well, let's not talk about him. You'll find instructions that I've written for you in the Hummer. See you tomorrow. And with that, he walked off. The next night, I got into the Hummer and was just about to start when I suddenly remembered the note that Sarge had left for me. I got it out of the cup holder, out of all places. Here's what it said. Good evening, Jason. First off, I want to make one thing completely clear. This is not by any means a joke. You know I don't do jokes and your life may very well depend on it. Rule 1. Do not, under any circumstances, get out of the Hummer. Ever. With the exception of rule number 5. Rule number 2. If the radio in the Hummer crackles to life, answer it. And if you hear anything other than my voice, shut it off. They are trying to locate you. Rule number three. The patrol route is clearly marked with yellow signs. If you see any sign other than yellow, stop the Hummer and radio the base. We'll come and resolve the issue. Rule number four. You'll most likely encounter an old man. Stop and ask him what he's doing. If he says that he's lost, point him in the direction of the nearest town, which is three clicks due west of here. If he says anything else, floor it. Run him over if you need to. Rule number five. If by any point you need to go to the washroom, do it in under three minutes, because that's the time that it takes for them to find you. Rule number six. If you encounter another Hummer during the patrol, hail them. If they respond, continue as usual. If not, stop the Hummer, shut off the engine, and pray to God that they didn't see you. Rule number seven. If you see anyone on the final third of the patrol, take the Glock 19 out of the glove compartment and shoot them, no matter who they are. If you haven't shot within two minutes of seeing them, you're screwed. Rule number eight. If at any point your Hummer breaks down, radio the base immediately and someone will come pick you up. Rule number nine, the most important one too. If you return to the base and see yourself waiting in your spot, contact security immediately and request that you be put in protective custody. The guards will understand and they will tell you once they've dealt with the situation. And lastly, be careful out there. We've lost two soldiers out there already. Don't become the third. Good luck. Sarge. Okay, so what did I just read? I thought to myself. Never mind, just get on with it. And so I started out on the patrol, with the guards in the towers holding their hands in some sort of prayer, and then they waved me through. The first few hours were peaceful, with the yellow signs telling me which part of the patrol that I was on. And I was at the one-fifth mark when the radio crackled to life, and it nearly made me hit my head on the roof. Number two, if the radio in the Hummer crackles to life, answer it. 
and if you hear anything other than my voice, shut it off. They're trying to locate you. I almost lunged for the receiver and held it up to my ear. It was a woman weeping on the other end. I was paralyzed. I was trying to compose myself when the weeping turned into amused laughter. God dang it. I slammed the receiver down so hard that I cracked the case and I booked it the heck out of there. I was petrified and I didn't snap out of it until the one-third mark and that's when I noticed the signs were blue. Number three. The patrol route is clearly marked with yellow signs. If you see any sign other than yellow, stop the Hummer and radio the base. We'll come and resolve the issue. I slammed on the brakes and immediately radioed the base. Come in, come in, I said. I'm on patrol and I noticed that these signs are blue. Roger that, Sarge said. Someone's on their way now. By the way you seem on edge, is anything wrong? He asked. Nope, I lied, not telling him what had happened. Everything's as fine as it should be, Sarge said. Okay then, well, someone's on their way. They'll reach your location in five minutes, hold tight. After what seemed like two decades, a jeep pulled up and someone stopped out. He told me to cover my eyes and ears and then proceeded to do some stuff that would likely result in me being banned if I described it. The next few miles were non-eventful, except where I saw another Hummer in the road. Thankfully, when I hailed them, they responded. So, there is rule number six out of the way for now. When I got to the final one-third of the patrol, I was on edge. I thought that I heard screams from the woods, but I shrugged it off and kept on going. I had to slam on the brakes to avoid running over my wife. What the... I began to think when I remembered. Number seven. If you see anyone on the final third of the patrol, take the Glock 19 out of the glove compartment and shoot them, no matter who they are. If you haven't shot them within two minutes of seeing them, you're screwed. FML. I reached for the gun, but I couldn't do it. Her eyes were begging me not to, and I didn't want to, but I knew that I had to or else I was dead. Tears rolling down my cheeks, I leaned out and I pulled the trigger. I cursed to no one in particular. I just drove on with the knowledge of what I had done to my own wife. Now things were getting serious. I was approaching the spot where I saw him, or rather, me. I was just standing there, with a too wide, malicious smile on my face. Number 9. If you return to the base and see yourself waiting in your spot... Contact security immediately and request that you be put in protective custody. The guards will understand and will tell you once they've dealt with the situation. And so I called the guards and they asked me what was wrong. And I just pointed at me since I was too shocked. The guards glanced from me to me and back again, nodded and escorted me to a private cell. After about three hours, the guards returned and let me out of the cell. Now, that's my patrol story. I'll get to the mysterious cargo shipments when I get some beer and psychological help. See you soon. So, a couple of things have happened in between my last update. First, I can confirm that I really didn't shoot my wife during my patrol last night, thank God. And that my post has changed. So the sergeant came up to me today and said, 
Hey, Jason, I heard about last night, and I was impressed how you handled the situation. Most people wouldn't have made it back. Thank you, I said. Well, don't worry about it, he responded. But I have a new job for you tonight. I need you to handle delivery security tonight. Um, okay, sir, I think I can handle it. <laughs> don't worry, Jason. Heinrich's back and Carl is recovered, so they'll be joining you too. You start at 6.50pm and finish at 5.15am. Have a good one. Good one, yeah, right. I thought as I got ready for my shaft. The delivery section of the base was big. Four trucks could fit in it and there would still be room to spare. I saw Heinrich walk up to me. Guten Tag, Jason, he said. Oh, hey, Heinrich, I responded. How's the family? Good, good, but my son has a fever. Ready to start, Jason, he asked. Yeah, I am, I responded. But where's Carl? Oh, he's at his post. But you need to hurry. Your shift starts in five minutes. I thanked him and noticed a note pinned to a wall that said, Delivery positions. Heinrich, rations. North entrance. Carl, medical supplies. Northwest entrance. Jason, mechanical supplies. Northeast entrance. So, I need to head to the northeast entrance, I thought, as I walked towards my post. I was still thinking about last night when I bumped into a door. My position was etched in bold on a brass plate on the door. Well, here I am, I thought, and then I turned the doorknob. It was unlocked. The room was cooler than it was outside, and it had a lever on the back wall, and a console with screens on the left. In the very center, there is an item that made my blood run cold. It was a note with instructions on it. Cursing my bad fortune, I gingerly picked the note up. Here's what it said. Hello, guardsmen. This note is to prepare you for your following shift at this post. Please read these instructions carefully and follow them to a T. Or very unfortunate things will happen to you. Rule number one. You only have mechanical supplies coming through here. If you see any truck marked otherwise, direct them to the appropriate entrance. Rule number two. Our trucks have the base logo on the side of them, which is a white octagon with the Omega symbol inside. If you see trucks without said logo, alert security. Rule number three. Lock the door at all times. Rule number four. Between 11.50 and 12.30, do not exit the room. No truck should come through at this time, giving you no reason to go out. Rule number five. Your squad mates have their own jobs to do. So if you hear knocking on your hopefully locked door, and hear your squad mates asking you to open up, ignore them. Rule number six. Howling from the woods is natural. Screaming and or crying is not. If you hear the latter, get the mini Uzi from the drawer and pray that the door holds. Rule number seven. If you see anyone at the entrance, use the intercom to direct them to the civilian entrance. If they have no face, pull the lever at the back of the wall, which will close the gates and contact security. Rule number eight. If you're inspecting a truck and hear a music box playing, order the driver to open the back and shoot anything inside. Remember, you have machine parts and supplies. Nothing should be moving. Rule number nine. 
You will see a young woman in the room. She will give you useful items like extra magazines or spare batteries. Take what you need. But for the love of all things holy, don't say no. Rule number 10. This almost never happens, but if you see a red truck coming off the road, immediately close the gates and pray you hear the truck skid off the road, or else the cleaning crew will need to use a mop on you. This is not a prank nor a joke, and we are not responsible for whatever happens if you decide not to listen. Sincerely, Base Security. Oh great, this again. I thought while I pondered why I had agreed to this. Well, too late to back out, it's getting late and I need to start. Locking the door, I wave the first few trucks in. The first few hours were not eventful with only a handful of trucks going to the wrong place, but I redirected them to either Heinrichs or Carl's Post. But then I noticed a truck that had no visible symbol. Number two, our trucks have the base logo on the side of them, which is a white octagon with the Omega symbol inside. If you see trucks without said logo, alert security. Come in, base security. I nearly yelled into the radio. There's a truck bearing no logo at the northeast entrance. Could you send someone to deal with the situation? Roger that. Someone's on their way. The voice responded. About two minutes later, a guy in body armor tapped on my window and told me to look away. And then made some loud noises and then cursing broke out. When I turned around, the truck and the guy were gone. Confused, I continued on. It was now 11.50 and no trucks had come in. So I radioed Heinrich to ask how stuff was going along. Heinrich? Come in, Heinrich, I said. Oh, hello, Jason. Heinrich's cheerful voice filled the room. Hey, Heinrich, how are things going on your end? I asked. Oh, not much. Some drivers came from your gate, I believe. I could barely contain my laughter. Those idiots, I said. I got three of yours and two of Carl's. Speaking of, have you heard from Carl at all? No, I haven't, Heinrich said. But I'm sure he can handle them. It was here that I was interrupted by the loudest scream that I had ever heard. It sounded like the depths of hell were opening up on the other side of the door. Jason, what's happening? Heinrich yelled out and I couldn't answer. Every regret of my life was running through my mind and then... Zen. Oh, I'm fine, Heinrich. I looked at the time. It was at 12.30. Number four. Between 11.50 and 12.30, do not exit the room. No truck should come through at this time, giving you no reason to go out. So, that's why I thought as I waved the next truck through... I can't believe I just noticed, but Site Omega is wag. So I finished the last few trucks. Luckily, without the music box, and was about to wrap up when I saw something on the camera. It was a red truck. Oh, heck no. Number 10. This almost never happens, but if you see a red truck coming off the road, immediately close the gates and pray you hear the truck get off the road, or else the cleaning crew will need to use a mop on you. I dove for the lever and nearly pulled it out. The truck was just a mile away, but the gate was closing so slowly. I prayed that my death would be swift. But at the last minute, I heard something swerve off the road and slam into the wall. Ah, oh, thank God. Heinrich, check in. Carl, come in, I said. Here, said Heinrich. Here, 
said Carl. Okay, I need a nap. I'll see you guys after I've found more beer than last time, and more psychological help. So, I'm back at it again, and in the hospital, treating some wounds after what happened tonight. If you're getting confused, I don't blame you, so let's get started. So, I was in my quarters recovering from my patrol and nightmarish delivery guard duty when a note was passed under my door. Here's what it said. Attention. It has come to the knowledge of the high command that a known organization called Warrior Liberty Front, not to be confused with Washington Liberation Front, has been targeting military bases all over the country. As such, command has ordered all soldiers with three years of experience in the base to meet in the mess hall, no exceptions, so guard roles can be distributed. Sincerely, Head of Security. Three years of experience, uh, I guess that's me, I thought. Still recovering from the past two days. When I got to the mess hall, I saw Heinrich, Carl, and a few others that I didn't recognize. Hey guys, did you see the note? I asked them. Yeah, I saw it, but I don't know what post I'm going to be assigned to. I wonder what... All right, you idiots. The high commander suddenly yelled out. I put your rolls up on the wall. Now do your duties unless you're too dumb to even read. And with that, he left and slammed the door shut. Still in shock, I said to Heinrich, Well, there's your answer. And I went to view the paper. Guard pose. Hans, base perimeter. Fritz, Charles, Robert, and Carl. Watchtowers. Heinrich, server rooms. Jason, archival room. Failure to appear at your post will result in severe reprimands. Well, Heinrich, I'll see you tomorrow. I said to him before I walked off. Maybe I'll finally get some answers tonight. It took about five minutes to get down to the archival rooms, and I ran into Heinrich on the way there. Hey, where are the server rooms? He asked. And down there and take a left. My post is here, I said. The room was big with five doors that read Security Room, National Archive, Technology Archive, Scientific Archive, and Medicine Archive. Why one base would need four archival rooms was beyond me. When I entered it, I found a monitor linked to camera systems, a Mossberg 500 shotgun in a rack with 20 boxes of ammo, an earpiece, and of course, a list of rules. Just by luck. Here's what they said. Archival room rules. If you're reading this, it means that you were picked up for the archival room guard duty. Feel free to read any documents that you wish, since they were declassified decades ago. Please follow these rules to best carry out your job. Rule number one. There will be a check in every hour. Be sure to answer. Rule number two, you need to patrol each room at least once, but if you hear growling coming from the other side of a room door, skip it and reinforce the door. Reinforcements can be found under the desk. Rule number three, by now you would have heard of the WLF. Make sure to check the camera system every once in a while, while operatives carry equipment that jam electronic devices. If you see a camera in any room turn static, Barge right on in there and shoot anything that moves. Rule number four. Between 11.40 and 1.30, only view the cameras in each room. 
If the camera goes static, don't worry. Whatever's in there, we'll get them. Rule number five. If you hear someone knocking on your door, say, I'm in it, and they'll leave you alone. Rule number six. As stated before, read what you wish while on patrol. But please keep patrols no more than ten minutes long. Rule number seven. If you see none of your fellow squad members while you're stationed here, if you see anyone while on patrol, immediately order them to identify themselves. If they don't, shoot them. Rule number eight. If you see a little girl in a red dress on any of the cameras, shut off the camera and reinforce the room door. Rule number nine. If you hear your earpiece broadcast in an unbelievably loud sound, take it off and crush it with your foot. You will not be reprimanded, but you won't be able to tell if WLF operatives are nearby. Rule number 10. If you hear laughter coming from any room, run to the security office and reinforce the office door. Do not remove the reinforcement until the end of your shift. Note. If you manage to capture an operative, alert security and they'll come and take him or her away. You're only going to be here for one night, since extra personnel will arrive in the morning. But until then, stay safe. Okay, so I'll only be here for one night. I thought as I pondered my life choices. Well, at least I'll finally get some answers here. I decided to head into the technology archive room first, since I have mechanical parts for my delivery guard duty and I'm just curious. Well, no WLF operatives have showed up yet, but I did learn lots of interesting things like the development of the German military and many of the stuff that we use. I was about to move on when this came through the earpiece. Guardsmen, this is your commander, report in. Jason redacted here, nothing on my end, I responded. We'll copy that, Jason. Be aware that we got reports of operatives around the perimeter and a suspected sighting in the server room one, so be alert. Yep, I got it, I said. And then I moved my way to the National Archives when I heard a growl from the other side. Number two, you need to patrol each room at least once, but if you hear growling coming from the other side of a room door, skip it and reinforce the door. And so I booked it back, and sure enough, there were door barricades under the desk. I ran back towards the National Archives, and as soon as I had finished setting up the barricade, a huge thump rang out, and I was physically pushed back, and I landed on the floor. And thank God. After noping out of the National Archives, I checked the time, and it was 11.45. So I headed back to the office, and I watched the cameras and there was static on the camera in the scientific archive. I wasn't worried, in fact, when I heard the growling and screaming and frantic shooting. I couldn't help but smile, as those WLF operatives had met a hideous demise. At 1.36, I grabbed my Mossberg 500 and headed to the scientific archive to find any survivors, and to my disbelief, there was a female operative that had survived. But after she had both stabbed and shot me two times, I couldn't believe it. If you manage to capture a WLF operative, alert security and they'll come and take him or her away. So I searched her and found a file named Swallow Song. I couldn't make anything of it, so I decided to give it to the commander when I reported in. Come in, I said. 
Now, I have a female operatives in my custody here, and I'm requesting pick a hopper. Roger that, Jason. Sending a team to your position. Good work, by the way. And so I took her back, but we didn't talk much. But we stared daggers at each other until the security team came, with the commander, and took the operative away. And I also showed them the file that I had found as well. Well, okay, I'll look into it, but nice work tonight. I'll be sure to tell your sergeant about your performance. I thanked him and the rest of my chef was peaceful. Now, I'm in the medical ward to recover. I wonder if Carl went through the same situation. Hey everyone, I'm back from a busy night that was possibly related to Operation Swallow Song. So once again, the Sarge came up to me and said, Hey, there's the guy that I wanted to see. And I said to him, Hey Sarge, did you get anything from the operative that I had captured yesterday? No, she committed uninstalled life before we could question her. But we're currently debunking theories on what this all is. Is it related to the 262? Uh, possibly, but let's not jump to conclusions yet. There's still a high security risk at the moment, so I need you to guard the reactor chambers. I'm sorry, the reactor chambers? I asked in disbelief. Relax, you'll get special equipment when you get there. I'll see you tomorrow. What? No, no, no. I said to organize a... I heard him yell as he walked away. Luckily, I'm two days from retiring. I thought as I made my way down to the reactor chambers that shouldn't exist, by the way. When I got down there, there was a heavy blast door that had a note on it. Caution. The security room is the only safe place from radiation outside of this area. The security room is beyond this door. There will be an airlock attached to the room. Repeat. The chambers are extremely radioactive, and you will die if you aren't protected. Authorized personnel only. Yeah, no kidding, Sherlock. I thought as the blast door automatically opened. The security room wasn't that big. Just a monitor hooked up to a couple of cameras. A panel controlling the chamber doors. A tactical hazard suit. Yes, those are a thing. An M4 battle carbon in a case and a file of German nuclear history for some reason. A earpiece and the rules, of course. Reactor room rules. While it may seem like this post will be uneventful, trust me, that can change in a dime if allowed. And these reactors are two decades old, so you better follow these rules. Rule number one. Do not leave this room without your suit, obviously. Rule number two. Take the provided carbon when out of patrol to each of the chambers. There may be unexpected guests that you may encounter. Rule number three. The chamber doors are controlled by the buttons on the panel. Rule number four. If any of the chamber doors open on their own, immediately close the door using the respective button and seal all the doors using the lever. Rule 5. If WLF operatives are in the area, the cameras will show static, so go to the relevant chamber and deal with the situation. Rule number 6. If you are patrolling any of the chambers and if you see the door close, immediately pull the override lever and haul bot back to the security booth. Rule number 7. If you see a flashing red light on a camera in any chamber, Shut off said camera 
and lock all the doors. It's not a meltdown. Rule number eight. If you hear crying or screaming coming from any chamber, lock that chamber's door. Rule number nine. All doors are marked with radioactive. If you find a door with biohazardous material in it, skip that chamber. Radiation isn't the only thing inside. Rule number 10. We have four chambers marked, one through four. If you see a fifth door, ignore it and contact base security. Rule number 11. There are no workers that are working during your shift. If you see anyone, inform security immediately and lock yourself in the office. And for the love of God, don't talk to them. They are not human. Rule number 12. Be sure to check the spent reactor power rods in each chamber. The list of spent rods will be on a list somewhere in the room. If the number of spent rods are less than the number listed, simply remove a rod, as one will definitely be spent. If it's over the number, run. Rule number 13. The most important part. If you see shadows in any of the chambers, turn off the camera before they notice. If they so much as glance at the camera, they've noticed. Note. If your suit is not at the specified location, contact the Special Engineer Corps and they'll resolve the issue. And if you need more details, feel free to read all the papers in the file to be more educated. Do not disregard these rules, or radiation will be the least of your concerns. Sincerely, Special Security Ops. Thank God, I have to put up with this crap for two more days. My thought as I suited up before my shaft. So, as my cancer chances increase every hour, it was time for my first round. Chamber 1 was first, and it was mostly uneventful, with all the reactor rods accounted for with no extras. And the next was a more eventful, with the doors automatically closing behind me. Number 6. When you are patrolling any of the chambers, if you see the door close, immediately pull the override lever and haul butt to the security booth. I nearly lunged for the lever because I nearly forgot what to do. I pulled the lever and ran for it. After about 30 minutes, the camera in chamber 3 showed some static. Well, time to take out the trash, I thought with a smile, as I grabbed the carbon off the rack. When I entered the chamber, I found four WLF operatives trying to heist some spent reactor rods. Big mistake. I took them out without hesitation. And then I found something out about Operation Swallow Song. A WLF operative had another file in him. This one described what the Schwalben are. The Schwalben are high-tech super soldiers, apparently. And they use ammunition made from spent uranium which has immense penetrating power. The Schwalben and the WLF are apparently a surviving Nazis group, and the plan on restoring Germany to Hitler's dream. After the cleanup crew came and cleaned up the mess, I heard crying coming from Chamber 4 as I was preparing to enter. Number 8. If you hear crying or screaming coming from any chamber, lock that chamber's door. So I relocked that thing and slid a conveniently placed metal bar across the door to deadbolt it. A second later, an animalistic scream and repeated slamming came from the door, and I was glad that the blast doors were built like tanks. After another half hour, I saw some more static, so I headed to the chamber. Nothing could have prepared me for what I had found.
It was two people in exosuits who were trying to steal some more spent rods. It's the Schwalben. Crap. Thankfully, I will give you my all suddenly came through the speaker, and before I continue, I highly recommend that you listen to the song, though. You can get why it felt so epic at that time. The first one charged me using an extendable blade from its wrist, but it missed and slammed into the wall. The second one shot at me with an LMG. Gotta remember uranium bullets, and I shot back. And then the one with the blade again charged at me and nearly got me, but I dodged out of the way and made him hit the guy with the LMG, knocking them both unconscious. And then I took both out and hit him in the head. By the time security arrived, my shift was over, and I went to debrief with the head of security. I'll post again once I've figured everything out and I get this dang suit off. Hey everyone, so I was assigned to a new squad tonight, and it got more intense than ever. Sarge came up to me and said, Okay, Jason, for your last two nights, I want you on the Omega Black Squad, our elite division. I don't know much, but they'll tell you more when you get there. Good luck. So I headed underground to the facility housing, the Omega Black Squad. And once I was there, a gorgeous woman with green hair and eyes greeted me in the hallway. Hey there, Jason. She said a little too enthusiastically. I'm Selena and I need to give this to you. Okay, so where do I? I was interrupted by Selena giving me a bone-crushing hug. What are you doing? Sorry, but you're really handsome and I've never seen a new person in like two years. Also, head to the break room. That's a map that I gave you. See you soon. She said as she walked off. Good God. I thought as I headed to the break room. When I got there, I didn't see anyone. But there was a Chris Vector machine gun, an earpiece, and rules which I could tell were written by Selena. Initiation Instructions Hello, Jason. As per usual standards, all new members must undergo an initiation in order to be formally acknowledged by Omega Black. If you tell anyone, we will deny all knowledge of you and any procedures performed. Now the job is easy. Patrol the facility and there will be people with you. These rules are to ensure your safety. Rule number one. Start a patrol every 30 minutes. Rule number two. I will be in the security office at all times. If you see me in the hallway like how I greeted you today, ignore it. Rule number three. You will see a ghostly white man in a two-piece suit with long arms. Do not show any signs of fear, and he'll leave you alone. Rule number four. If for some reason you need to enter the security room, say the code word Alpha and I'll let you in. Otherwise, I'll shoot you. Rule number five. The three members that will be with you are Fritz, Charles, and Hans. We do not have a member with the name Kruger. If Kruger is spotted, run to the break room and lock the door. Rule number six. There will be a skeleton crew of workers in the labs and on janitorial duty. You are encouraged to talk to the janitorial staff, but don't disrupt the lab workers. Rule number seven. If you're patrolling and hear a female scream, haul it back to the break room and remain there for the rest of the night. Rule number eight. If you need to round a corner or enter a room, but you don't know what's waiting for you, Ask me to check since I can see you on the cameras. Rule number nine. 
You can trust the janitors. They'll provide you with advice and warnings. Just be respectful and don't knock down the wet floor signs. Rule number 10. You'll get a Chris Factor SMG, but never shoot anything that hasn't engaged you first. Rule number 11. If you hear the elevator stop on this floor, enter and make sure that there's no blood in it. If there is, continue on your patrol, but say a prayer every five minutes. The type of deity doesn't matter, but make sure you say it in a clear and understandable voice. And finally, if you ever feel the need to chat, I'm always open to conversation. Sincerely, Selena. So, what do you say? Said a voice behind me and I nearly fell over. It was three heavily armored people with Chris Factors as well. Oh, okay, I'm ready. I said in response. Great, your round starts soon. Don't be late. Fritz, I think, said. Don't worry, I'll be with you. It's a two-man job. So after around 20 minutes of waiting, Fritz and I started our first round. It was mostly uneventful with Selena guiding us from the security room. The next round was more intense. The slender man in the two-piece suit appeared in the hallway when I was minding my own business. When I turned around, there he was. 3. You will see a ghostly white man in a two-piece suit with long arms. Do not show any signs of fear until leave you alone. I was terrified. It had no face and no hands, but I was determined not to show it. After what was far too long, he simply vanished. Jason, Jason, can you hear me? Selena yelled into my earpiece. I saw the Slender Man on the camera. Are you okay? I'm good, I replied. Except I may have wet my pants a little bit. Thank God. Fritz reported you missing five minutes ago. Head back to the break room. He's waiting. After I apologized to Fritz for delaying the check-in, I went back on patrol. I was getting curious, so I said to Selena, uh, How long have you been on Omega Black? About three years, and as I said, You're the most handsome person I've ever met, she said. Ahem. Fritz suddenly blurted out. Charles and Hans were bent double with laughter. If you two lovebirds are finished flirting with each other, then do your freaking jobs. Oh, okay. You could practically hear the embarrassment in her voice. After trying to bleach that event from my memory, unsuccessfully by the way, I finally got some answers. I found a file named Cerebral Cortex Interface System, which to quote allows the user to transfer his or her thoughts and memories onto a computer system, but the user will be dead. There was a sheet of paper attached to the file that said this. This classified document details the steps to transfer one's conscious onto a computer system. Pros. Disabled can be free. People near death can be saved. People transferred into the system can control the base systems as efficiently as a human brain. The subject can talk to whoever was controlling it. The cons. The subject dies after transfer. The subject can transfer between systems. Can jump from a PC to a laptop. The subject must be mentally stable. The subject can be corrupted by computer viruses. To God, I thought, this can't be real, right? After about two hours, my shift was over and I debriefed. I'll update you all soon. System Online, 
Location, Seidel Mega, the Black Forest, Germany. Date, 7-21-20. Time, 16-30. Begin transmission. Hello, I've changed, and if you have questions, well, let's just say that I have no mortal boundaries anymore. After my last post, everything went wrong. I followed the rules, and yet everything was wrong. Allow me to start from the beginning. It was the day after my last post, and I had one more job left, which was to guard the redacted test labs as part of my former duty as a member of Omega Black. Now, what was in the labs? It's censored, redacted, data expunged, and the cerebral cortex interface system. When I entered the lab, a note written by Selena was on the security desk. Hey Jason, for your final night, we ask you to guard the redacted testing labs. You just need to make sure that the WLF, yes I heard, don't make it in. Just stay safe and you can ask me out when you're done. Sincerely, Selena. After I read the note, I started my usual patrol route. The rules hadn't changed from last time. Thirty minutes had passed when I saw a WLF operative attempting to enter lab number one. I dealt with him with minimal issues and went on as usual. Then, at around 11.50, I felt a sharp pain in the base of my head and I passed out. Get your butt up, said a voice in front of me. I didn't capture you for you to just sleep around. What the heck are... I began, and then I saw the WF logo on his sleeve. Who I am is not important, he said. What is important is your information on the inner workings of this base. You killed seven of my operatives. Seven. And that means you have many things stored in that head of yours, and I need them. I'm not telling you anything, I said. And I'm definitely not telling you what's in there. Hey, Jason, what's going? Fritz suddenly appeared behind my captor. Fritz, shoot him! I yelled before I bolted away. I could hear Fritz unloading at my captor and his forces, but I didn't escape unharmed. A spray of bullets at my side and one punctured an artery. Ah, dang it, I said through gritted teeth. And then suddenly the slender man appeared in front of me. Luckily for me, I wasn't afraid of him, but the same couldn't be said for my pursuers. What the heck? One of them sputtered out. As I ran away, I could hear them shooting and getting ripped to shreds behind me. And then two more showed up in the hallway to the left. One of these super soldiers yelled at me. As I approached the cerebral cortex interface system, a bullet hit me in the lung and I fell over. I swore. Now the interface system was the only thing that could save me now. As I prepared myself for the transfer... A voice ran out from the other side of the door. In there, get the freaking door open. I hurried with the preparations as the voice said. Set the breaching charges. We need to get this door open. I pressed the button and everything went black. I saw as the security forces dealt with the WLF. I saw as they found my body. I saw as Selena cried her eyes out. I saw as they buried me with the Iron Cross. Now I shall control these systems and this base shall become great. For I am no longer Jason Redacted. I am Rasputin, the Kriegs Machine.
and transmission. Time, 23.30. System status, standby mode. Thank you all so much for sticking around and listening to this week's stories. Like I said in the opening, I really hope that you're all safe and sound in the world. And as always, stay creepy.